Aquaman and Superman, Animal Man and Plastic Man, Firestorm and Nuclear Man, Batman and Hawkman, 2D Man and Hour Man. Who are all these people, man? They're all part of the DC. Who's who? Booster Boy and Booster Gold, Lightning Lass and Hippolyta, Phantom Stranger, Hitchick and Arisia and Woozy Winks. Hey, hey, hey. What? What about that one guy? What guy? Mr. Pretzel, Mr. Lipstick, Mr. Mitzelfuzzle? Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him. He's also part of the DC Who's Who. Hello, and welcome to the eighth episode of Who's Who in the DC Universe, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm one of your hosts, the Irredeemable Shag, and along with me, as always, is my co-host, the esteemed Rob Kelly. How you doing, buddy? Hello, you magnificent bastard. <laughs> Frag you, pal. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is the Lobo issue, folks. You can't help but love the main man. And uh, we'll talk a lot about that in a bit. But before we do, I, you know, we... Some of these episodes go pretty long, so I'm going to try and move through this fairly briskly. <laughs> some. <laughs> some. Some of them are four hours. Anyway, let's cut right to some cool stuff. First off, we have been meaning to tell you guys for a long time now, if you haven't heard already, Rob and I are going to be at the Boston Fan Expo in August. We are so excited about this. Um, I We... It's, we haven't seen each other in over a year. We're really looking forward to resuming our Mortal Kombat with swords and, and you know, da, 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 that kind of stuff. Finish him! Right. <laughs> we will be there um, at Artist Alley signing autographs if anyone would like to come get some. And by signing autographs, I mean if you would like to come up and get a personalized apology note from us for you having to listen to this <laughs> drivel for seven years or eight years, whatever it is. We're happy to do that for you. So <laughs> I'm excited to see you, pal. I'm really looking forward to it. We didn't get together. We didn't get get a chance to get together last year. I almost did, but I didn't get to go. So I am very much looking forward to seeing everybody. Um, there's a couple of people that I'm going to be meeting for the first time, which is super exciting. Oh, I, I love these conventions we do every year where we get a chance to hang out with all of our friends, and it's uh, going to be so wonderful. So anyway, folks, if you are going to be in the Boston area, if there's any chance you can come to the Boston Fan Expo, please, please let us know. We'd love to catch up with folks uh, from the network, uh, friends of the network, and just hang out and have a good time. There's going to be a bunch of us there already. So let's add to the group more, more the merrier. So I am dying to meet Ryan Daly. Um, prepare to be underwhelmed. Just saying. Um, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> uh, other news: the DC, uh, the DC Universe, which is the subscription app. You know, it's the like the all you can eat kind of thing. It's got the video and it's got the comics. Well, folks, you've probably already seen it in the news, but they have announced that they are loading everything. They've gone from just having one thousand, two thousand comics to now they have twenty thousand plus comics. Oh my gosh! And all 26 issues of the original Who's Who run is now on the DC app. I have gone from being like one of the biggest antagonists of the app to being one of the biggest protagonists app, uh, of the app overnight. I'm so thrilled. Oh my gosh, there's so much chocolatey goodness out there, Rob. Oh, so happy. <laughs> We'll finally get to look at the balloon buster listing listing in 4K. <laughs> As it was always meant to be. <laughs> <laughs> well, before we get too much further, and again, these things run long, so let's get cranking on it. Rob, we need to take a second to thank our sponsor. Folks, this episode of the, of the Who's Who podcast is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 42% off with free shipping for orders of $50 or more. So what did you got this time, Rob? 
Well, I brought uh, the. Well, I'm, I'm not. I didn't bring it. I'm, I'm <laughs> plugging it. Uh, Death, the deluxe edition hardcover. Of course, it's by Neil Gaiman. Who else would it be? This basically collects all the solo death stories, and of course, she appears in this book. It's Death, the High Cost of Living, one to three. Death, the Time of Your Life, one to three. Uh, stories from Vertigo, Winter's Edge, number two. The Sandman, Endless Night, Sandman, number eight, number twenty. A Death Art Gallery, wow. plus plus the um, Death talks about life AIDS pamphlet which features a, a guest appearance from John Constantine, which is truly wonderful. It's a, it harkens back to the classic DC PSAs, if you can count uh, the including of a putting on of a condom. Uh, <laughs> it features art by Chris Bachelow and a bunch of other people. The cover artist is Dave McKeon. Normal price, $29.99 for 320 pages, but in-stock trades price is $17.39. That's 42% off. That's a great price for a lot of death. Dude, it's it's an incredible run of books, too. I mean, the, just the death of high cost of living is worth the price of admission by itself. And Chris Boccolo, he, he took – but it's so weird to think he took death and made her adorable. You know, I mean, there were so many yep. posters and, and things. I remember her with the umbrella and everything. Just such a great character. And just you couldn't help but be pulled in by Neil Gaiman's storytelling with the art. Oh, that's a great collection. A lot of great stories there. Well worth it. And along in the same vein, I brought Tiny Titans. Um, <laughs> Tiny Titans Volume 1, Welcome to the Treehouse trade paperback, because Raven is in this issue, so I thought, uh, what's my favorite version of Raven in printed form? Tiny Titans actually is. <laughs> so if you like uh, Art Baltazar and Franco, and everyone freaking should, you should check this out. It clicks the first six issues of this kid-friendly uh, book for the Teen Titans. It is absolutely adorable. Have you ever read these things? Oh, yeah. Oh, it's great. I was about to say, anyone who doesn't like... Art Baltazar's work is dead inside. Right, exactly. If you haven't seen it, folks, it looks like they're – I'm simplifying it, but it looks like he drew it sort of with a crayon. I mean he didn't, obviously. There's a lot of skill that goes behind it, but it's designed in such a simplistic way that it looks like crayon marks and everything. It's so cool. Anyway, it's 144 pages, full color, normal retails for twelve ninety nine. You can get it for $7.53. That's 42% off. That is the best $7.53 you will spend on a comic book this year. I promise you because it's just full of joy. It's all the team titans in elementary school with uh just villains that, that are there as well and it's it's super super fun so folks for these and all your trade paperback needs please visit instocktrades.com go over to the contact us button and let them know that the firewater podcast network sent you there so all right folks we are going to get into who's here who's who here uh this is issue number eight of a 16 issue miniseries we are at the halfway point rob can you believe this i it's <laughs> <laughs> we need to do some more who's that's. we got to milk this thing, man. I'm telling you. That we're, we're going through this too quickly. Uh, cover price was yeah. – go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We're really going through this too quick. <laughs> <laughs> cover price was $4.95 back in 1991 dollars. And if you're curious what that is in 2019 dollars, we'll tell you in just a little while. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the cover—that's a true story. For the cover, uh, the cover date of this was April 1991. It was on the shelves February 26th, 1991. And now, again, this is the loose leaf format. So you get 24 entries per book. On the front side, you get this amazing art piece. On the back side, you get all the personal data, their history, their height, their weight, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and, and this version really, really focuses on the current DC universe at this time, rather than the history of like the previous ones. 
Uh, it's also, uh, I got to mention, I love to do it every month. And Rob, actually, Rob tries to steal this from me, but I insist on being the one to mention this, is the borders. You get the borders around all the characters. You get red for hero and black for villain. Damn it, Jay. I know. <laughs> I, I aped you again. Uh, so anyway, you get all the different borders, and we'll talk about them as we get to those. And, uh, and our goal is to describe these entries so that you don't need them in front of you. Because, honestly, flipping through these binders while you're sitting at your desk, supposed to be doing the TPS report, is not going to look good when the boss walks by. So our job is to sort of describe this for you. So you get a picture for it. But Rob, if they wanted to see some of the images from these, where, where could they go to find that? Go to uh, fireandwaterpodcast.com and look for the gallery post, which is going to accompany the post for this episode. Oh, I was going to suggest their parents' basement where they keep the binders. But that's good. They can go to the website. That works too. That's <laughs> where I am right now. <laughs> All right. Well, let's dive into this. There's not anything to talk about with the cover per se because per se, it is the Lobo entry. We'll talk about that when we get there. But on the inside, you get to the letters page and you get the column from Michael Yuri. So did you look over the letters? Anything worth note? I did. I mean, nothing's going to top last month with the, with the guy, the, the guy that wants the corrected, personally hand-delivered corrected copies. Right. Uh, <laughs> but, and then, of course, we're pretty, in a couple issues, we're going to get to a letter from uh, our own Chris Franklin, which is, like, amazing uh, of itself. But I will mention there is a letter from John Megala, uh, who, from Fontana, California, who compliments the fact that they, uh, who's who did a uh, ultra, uh, the multi-alien list. Yes. And so that's a, man, that's a man after my own heart. I'm really happy that he was happy that there was an ultra listing because as we know when we talked about it you and i both went nuts for the ultra listing so i'm very happy that someone else out there likes ultra the way i do well a few a few episodes episodes ago we actually played audio with john k schneider the third talking about that entry too that's how much we love it that's right so um one of the things i noticed in here was they do make a reference to the war of the gods being on the horizon but it's actually called um the holy wars at this point (laughs) i'd I'd never heard that before i can't imagine why dc changed the name of that (laughs) yeah i'm I'm sure that that went up the flag poems somebody was like uh no we're not, right. not going to do that no 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 so but you mentioned uh chris franklin having a letter printed so i gotta mention this did you realize the very last letter in this book is from little scott gardner as in two true freaks scott gardner i had no idea that that was that scott gardner yes because i as far as i know of the scott gardner from ttf is from florida not that you can't move of course <laughs> but this scott gardner is from new york and i just didn't make the connect i mean that name is you know relatively common so, yes no he uh, no. if it was a zoom yukonori or something so i no, i didn't make the connection yep he used to live in new york and uh yeah he it's actually it's funny he, he points out some typos uh, very reasonable ones is that he's not like uh, the guy in the last issue who's demanding reprinting copies he's also very complimentary so well done scott i think you wrote a very nice letter where you pointed out some things but at the same time you were uh, a well-behaved comic book fan so i'm impressed well done sir <laughs> I'll make sure to you know if it, oh, go ahead. I, he's like P.S. If there was some sort of format where I could talk about this stuff in an audio kind of manner, boy, I sure would do it. <laughs> I think that's a little uh, retcon uh, uh, commentary there, Rob. But anyway, uh, I'm going to include this one on the image gallery, folks, so you can see Scott's letter because that's fun. Uh, I, how often do you see a friend's letter in a comic? That's so crazy, especially when we're spending so much time on. Uh, well, I mean, it depends on when you're looking. I mean, if you go to some JLA from the 80s, you've seen a lot of Russell Burbage, but that's a whole other thing. That's true, and where he gets the name Little Russell Burbage from. Absolutely That's true. right. That's right. All right, folks. Well, uh, we're going to get into this, but remember, go out to the social medias. Use our hashtag, PoundFWPodcast. You can find Firewater Podcast on Facebook and Twitter. I would love to interact with you guys on the interwebs. We want to hear from you, and go out to our website and leave comments, please. As you're thinking about stuff, as you, uh, I, we're already getting comments on this issue already on Facebook. Um, Michael Bailey's already going off because <laughs> he, he saw the cover, and he's like, what, butchers in this thing? You know, um, <laughs> but please go out to our website, firewaterpodcast.com. 
com and go out there and leave your comments because we want to hear from you. We want to interact with you. We want to read your comments on the show. All right, Rob, uh, this issue is yours, sir. So I'm just going to take a back seat and uh, I get to I get to play the pithy comment guy this time. So you go. All right, I'm going to get this done in 45 minutes flat. So first up is <laughs> first up is, is first is Aries. Next is Aries. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. The first is Aries, of course, from Wonder Woman, second series number one. The uh, the copy is by Mark Wade. The art is by Cindy Martin, doing a pretty good George Perez kind of pastiche a yes, little bit. Is. I got to say. Uh, and on the back, my the big thing that stuck out to me uh, of this listing for Aries is the powers and weapons. Um, he's an Olympian god, and yet he gets basically two sentences for his powers and weapons, as do all the Olympian gods. Ares possesses tremendous strength and stamina. Moreover, he is a master of conflict and strategy and has complete command over any weapon. His armor is virtually indestructible. That's it. Like, okay. Like, he's just, he's just a god. Not that big of a deal. I guess we don't, I guess we could just leave all this. Space blank. I, I have the same theory and thing written down. A god underselling the powers a bit. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, wow. I mean, you could just say he's a god of freaking Olympus. He can do just about anything he wants. Instead, he's like, yeah, he's tough. He's a, he sounds like cyborg, actually. It's like, yeah, he's got some, you know, he's got some strength. He's got some endurance. Like, really? No, he's a freaking god. In fact, his occupation, I love this, a god of war. That's not something that, uh, you know, actually, if a resume came across my desk that said that, I wouldn't pay attention, right? <laughs> Guy deserves an interview at the very least. Right. Uh, I love that there's height and weight. Like at some point, somebody measured Aries and put him on a scale. They're like, "Here you go, three hundred fifty-nine. Oh, a little too heavy on the carbs, Aries. You know, like what is that? About? No, I imagine it was more like it came up like four twelve, and he goes, "It's three fifty-nine. And they're like, yeah, "Yes, exactly. sir. It is. It's exactly That's what that it. says." <laughs> That's right. A god does not overweigh. So anyway. Uh, I, I, no, I, I, I want to talk about Cynthia Martin for a second. So yes. I've always known Cynthia Martin as more of a looser penciler than this. Like, I mean, this is really tight pencils. It's very, very detail-oriented. And I'm not used to seeing her stuff like this. So I was really surprised it was her. Yeah, I mean, uh, I when I looked at it, I just I, – I, I kind of knew it wasn't Perez, uh, you know. From, I mean, I haven't looked at this issue in, in a long time. I just looked at it a minute ago for the first time. So, uh, you know, I – I, I I knew it wasn't Perez, but I didn't realize it was her either. And like and so yeah, she. I mean, and I don't mean that as a knock. I mean, I think she's clearly trying to emulate George Perez's style. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the and on the insets, the three panels are from. I'm pretty sure I think are George Perez, or at the very least, her copying Perez's panels. Mm. Because uh, the middle shot is of Demos and Phobos, and that's that's like I think that's right out of uh, literally a panel from Wonder Woman. Oh, so she so she's you know she's doing. Uh, a tribute to George Perez, which makes sense, of course, because this was the Wonder Woman book. So it looks nice. It's kind of interesting to see someone work in a very different style. Yeah, I, I just I, again, I, you're, like you, I could tell it wasn't Perez, but I never would have guessed it was her. Uh, I do like, yeah. I do like in the text they talk about. Um, this is interesting. How Wonder Woman gets the lasso on him, right? Because you know, he wants to destroy everything. That's that's his shtick, and she gets the lasso on him, and it sort of opens his eyes to the truth that if he destroys humanity, he'll have no followers. And that's how she defeated him. I thought that was rather clever. That's the best way to be to God is to say, well, you don't have anyone to worship you. So I thought that was really, really, really neat. 
you'll be master of all you survey, as I was today and the day before. You know, that kind of thing. Yep. Yeah. Yep. You realize everyone's got to learn that. So, yeah, it's pretty cool. I mean, of course, he was the villain in the Wonder Woman movie. Yep. Maybe not this version exactly, but it's the same basic idea. So, yeah, that's uh, that's pretty much airy. So, like, we want to move on? Well, I just the, the stuff I normally share. Like, uh, Wonder Woman number 53 was on the shelves at this point, And he had just appeared a month ago uh, or a month or two ago in Wonder Woman. And War of the Gods, which he'd be very involved with, is about four months away on the horizon. And you already mentioned the Wonder Woman movie, but for more information um, on Wonder Woman, necessarily not necessarily this version of Aries, but for Wonder Woman, you can check out our buddy Diablo Frank's Diana Prince uh, blog, uh, the new Wonder Woman, Diana Prince. So, okay, all right. Next up is Blackthorn, uh, written by her creator Paul Kupperberg. Uh, the art is by Kevin McGuire and Carl Kiesel. No, I'm kidding, of course. It's Barry Gibson. Uh, <laughs> call back to last episode, yes. Yeah, call back. We call that a runner in the business. Uh, yeah, her operation is a vigilante. She's a vigilante side character. She first appeared in Vigilante number 45. Later on, she joined Checkmate. So, again, this is Paul Kupperberg using one of his characters and, and putting her into another one of his series. And I was kind of curious. Uh, on the, the front image, I should say, it's her kicking all the ass. Yes. Uh, she's, take, she's taking out three guys at once, and then there's three other guys already unconscious. Right. So she's really getting a lot done on this kind of um, Gotham City-esque cityscape. And I was kind of curious about like how this came about that Paul wrote the entry for his own character. So I asked him. Oh. And and I asked him, I said, like, how did it come about? Like, did you re- did you say, hey, I want to do this listing because it's my character or did they come to you or whatever? And he said, hey, Rob, as I recollect, there was an effort to get the creators to write the entries for their creations whenever possible. I was asked to do the entries for all my creations, including the supporting characters. Writers might have gone after assignments to write the entries for older characters who didn't have a current writer to claim them. Check with Bob Greenberger. He can tell you how it all worked so there you go so yeah i was just sort of you know i always just wondered like because paul wrote you know a good number of the entries but he wasn't like one of like the who's who like staff writers for lack of a better term um and so i was sort of curious now i know that they you know that was nice they were like okay paul cover created this character so so he can write the entry um I'm, so that makes sense. Makes a lot of sense. I'm really glad to reach out to him because I mean, Mark Wade wrote the majority of these. In fact, I forgot to mention Mark Wade wrote the the previous one we just did, uh, Aries. But with this Paul Kupperberg one, I mean, one of my notes actually is is it's compelling the way he wrote this. It is extraordinarily well written. The character honestly has never grabbed me much. Uh, there's nothing wrong necessarily with Blackthorn, but she's just never been one of my favorites or gravitated towards. But the way he wrote this, it's sort of like the cyborg entry that Marv Oldman did an issue or two ago. This is really compelling the way it's written and really got me interested in the character. So it's a huge nod to him, and uh, it also a testament of why you should have the creators involved in writing the, the entry. It just makes it better. Yeah, it tells a story. Mm-hmm. It tells it, it's it's written as a story. And again, I don't mean that as a knock at some of the other listings, but I know that you you know you have your complaints about the ones that are like this happened, then that yep. happened, and this other thing happened, and then they went to Earth too. This is <laughs> he. The, the, this is Kupperberg telling a story about this character and weaving in her history. Yeah. Uh, they talk about that she was recruited by the CIA, and then they talk about that she started a romance with Vigilante, which we can see on one of the insets. She's got her got his mask pulled up, and she's smooching him and stuff like that. And then they talk about they worked with Checkmate. So, yeah, he really composes a whole tale, which only makes sense if you are the character's creator because, it's like, you've got – you know, that's in your bones. Yeah. And part of the part – the you know, they talk about her history of partying before all the CIA stuff. She was involved with drugs and alcohol and almost died. You know I mean? That really kind of got to me. I was like, wow. I mean, what a 
tragic sort of life that you know the, the path she was on. So I, I thought it was extremely well handled. Now at this point too, by the way, she's wearing the blue costume, uh, which is a, a huge improvement over the magenta costume she used to wear. So I I, I, I do like this costume better. And um, let's see. Oh, I should have mentioned the border. Her border's red because she's a hero, by the way. So yay for that. <laughs> and uh, at this point, Checkmate had ended over a year ago. Uh, and she really wasn't seen that many more times ever again after this, which is kind of a shame. Uh, yeah. I mean, there's nothing nothing wrong with this character. Exactly. I mean, I would have thought she would have shown up in maybe the Deathstroke. Deathstroke ongoing series, which is sort of like a, I don't know, a, a distant cousin of Vig- the Vigilante series to some extent. So mm-hmm. either way, mm-hmm. um, for more on Blackthorn, though, you can check out our buddy Aaron Headmoss's Task Force X podcast. All right. So next up is a double listing, The Brain and Monsieur Mala, of course, from the Brotherhood of Evil. Uh, they're currently uh, stars of the Doom Patrol TV series. Insane. Absolutely insane. Uh, which is completely nuts that we get to say that. Um, I Okay. I mean, we, we, we've talked about these characters before. They got listings in the previous iteration of Who's Who. Of course, they've had some new stuff happen to them because now there's a new Doom Patrol series. The text is by Mark Wade. The art is by Mark Nelson. Mm-hmm. And the image has got the Monsieur Mala with his giant machine gun and his bandolier with the brain sitting off to the side. And you've kind of got like these Tesla coils sort of in the background, all the electricity. I love these characters. I love all, almost all the Doom Patrol villains because they're just so batshit nuts. <laughs> um, but this listing is Snoozeville. The, the argument? Real, yeah, yeah. It's really boring. I mean, the previous entry, the what, the other, who's, it was done by Bill Sienkiewicz. I was trying to uh, remember. Someone amazing yeah. did a previous one. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, he did both of them because they got separate listings in the old yep. book, and they were both done by Sienkiewicz. And look, Bill Sienkiewicz is one of the great geniuses, I would say, of comic art, and so I'm not going to be like, well, they didn't, you know, I mean, somebody... Not as good as Sienkiewicz. Well, that's most people. Um, <laughs> but I just think I just think these characters are so absurd. You've got a guy. I mean, the brain is just a giant brain in a jar with a skull face. Uh, he kind of looks like Brainiac, you know, the '80s mm-hmm. Brainiac's cousin. And then you've got a machine gun toting gorilla. It 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 begs for some sort of stylization, yeah. not a sort of hyper realistic style. And I just think. It's failed a little by making this so kind of ordinary. And, and you're, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. I want to give Mark props, though, because, I mean, like, he did a really nice job with the machinery. He did a really nice job with the electricity flowing around. So he he used the whole page, which was well done. But, yeah, I, I think it's actually the gorilla and also the um, the way the, the it's framed. It, it's sort of a, a boring straight-on shot. The gorilla, as you said, looks just kind of like a gorilla. There's nothing really that interesting about it, uh, and, and that's where it falls down, I think. So it's it, it's a shame because they're great characters. You know, you know the big change to the characters at this point, though, since the last entry, right? Uh, well, they die. They talk about that they – Well, they, <laughs> it mentions, they're always dying, but – Well, okay, but I mean it mentions before they die, and this is they, they, they confess their long, unrequited love for one another. Exactly. That was the greatest moment. It was, it was about eight months before this. It was in the Doom Patrol issue by Grant Morrison – where, yeah, they finally get brain into a body. They get brain into like a robot man, a robot man body. And that's when the love gets professed. And it's, it was the biggest what the what moment when you read it in the comic. But it was at the same time, it was like, okay, yeah, that's perfect. And I don't know whether Morrison just made it work for us and it's out, out of left field. I don't know, but I found it hilarious. And it's always stuck with me all these years. It's one, like, one of my favorite moments for these characters. It's great. As, as Lynn uh, Manuel Miranda said, love is love is love. Is love. So. <laughs> 
And there's not a lot of text here, and I mean, we don't need no, to spend a lot of time no. on it. But yeah, it's it, you've said it all. It's a it's a brain in a jar, and it's a talking gorilla. I mean, that's that's kind of what you need to know, really. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, it, it, there, there's a lot of empty space, which is a shame mm-hmm. because I mean, these guys have been around a long time. It mentions their first appearance is Doom Patrol number eighty six, nineteen sixty four. They've been around thirty plus year, almost thirty years at this point. I mean, they've had a little more happen to them than this. It, when I see big empty white space, it just feels like you couldn't have put something in there. Yeah, and and Mark. Wade's usually really good at it, and it maybe too that mm-hmm. they just weren't sure. Maybe he was writing it at the same time the text was being developed, and they weren't sure how much space they would have because they knew it's two characters that they got a list and everything. I'm I'm really not sure, but uh, they did get a bit of short shrift here. But at the same time, they they want to make room for the other Doom Patrol stuff because these guys are kind of the past of the Doom Patrol at this point. Uh, you know, when Grant Morrison was writing it, the focus is going to be more on the Brotherhood of Dada and all that other kind of stuff. We're going to talk about a little bit of the Brotherhood of Yield in just a little bit here. But um, at the end of the day, it's a, it's a fun entry, and if you want more on them, you should check. Got the Waiting for Doom podcast, of course. The Doom Patrol TV show, which, by the way, last night I watched the first episode of that show. Wow. What the what the what um it was very very good it is not at all what i expected even though everyone's been warning me that it's not what i would expect um <laughs> i got a lot of good things to say about it i got some critical things to say about it but all, all in all it was i'm glad i watched it and i'll be watching more of them so and uh also if you want you could probably check out the pop culture affidavit our buddy tom panarese's uh blog because he spent some time covering titan stuff and of course the you know the doom patrol were hanging out with the titans in the 80s when they didn't have a book of their own so be worth checking that out as well and Doom Patrol number 43 was on the shelves. And, of course, their border is black. Of course it is. All right. So next up is The Butcher. What the what? By by uh, by Mike Barron. I wrote the text. He's the co-creator. And the art is by Shay Anton Pensa. Uh, this character is unique in that this they, it is owned by the creators. It is not a DC character. Hmm. Um, in fact, if you look in the indicia of this issue, it says all characters copyright DC Comics except The Butcher. Does it really? Which is, yes, it does. Uh, which is copyright Mike Barron and, and Shay Anton Pensa. So uh, I don't know how they worked that out because The Butcher did cross over uh, with the regular DC Universe. And in mm-hmm. fact, in the history, even talks about how The Butcher met Black Canary. And they did a uh, – there was a Brave and the Bold yep. miniseries exactly right. uh, where he teamed up with Green Arrow, which of course they mention here. Um, he's a he's a freelance spook, which like okay, I wonder what the tax code is tax code is for that one. He first appeared in the Butcher number one. Rather, they really went right out of the gate. Now, I know virtually nothing about this character other than what I re- other than what I read here. I never read any of his comics. I like the artwork a lot. I think it's a really captivating image um, drawn. It's, it's mostly he's mostly in shadow. He's got this knife in his hand and then a pistol in the other, and then you see these uh, the the sort of um, reverse sort of scratch board uh, images in the background. The, the logo was blood red. So I really dig the look. Should, should mention um, it's all Native American imi- you know, iconography yes. going on there too. Yes, yes, yes. I'm sorry. Yes, I should. Um, uh, they talk about the, that he was raised in the Lakota religion. And so, I mean, it looks like a, an interesting character. It's just one of these things that just, it just passed me by at the time. I think it passed almost everyone by. I mean, I, I was working in comic shops around this time, uh, maybe just a little bit after this, but like, Butcher was here, and then he was gone. And, you know, it's sort of a testament here that, like, he doesn't really uh, – he only has – after this Who's Who entry, according to my count, he only has seven more appearances ever. 
Uh, so he, he really was he was he stuck in the Butcher series and in the Mistree Quarterly series that DC was publishing for a short period of time. So really, I mean, huh. I started thinking about where else would we see this character ever again? And, you know, he did meet Green, Lan- Green Arrow at some point. So I, maybe in Warlord World's podcast, they'll touch on it. I don't know. I mean, I don't know that Mike Grohl was really in, involved with Butcher in any way. But um, it, it seems like an interesting character. You know, I'm always fascinated by when they turn a Native American character into a superhero. I think that's fun. And um, I'd be if I found it in a 50 cent bin or quarter bin, I'd be willing to check it out. But other than that, I never come across it. And I don't know that I would seek it out either. I went and looked up uh, Shay Anton Pensa because I'm not familiar with him or her. I don't know if it's a man or a woman um, who did the uh, the artwork. Whether like I didn't, I'm not familiar with them having done any other comic book work. And from what I can see, um, they seem to move in. This person seemed to move into kind of more uh, fine illustration mm, okay. uh, because they they continue their career has gone on. And in fact, I found I saw online a um, like an editorial cartoon that they did. Uh, featuring Superman and Batman, oh. <laughs> and it was kind of like a it was kind of like a comment on corporate mergers or something like that because they're holding like a Warner Brothers contract or something. I couldn't quite figure out the context of the the piece, but it's really nice. I mean, the the Mister Mister or Mrs. Pensa really knows how to use blacks mm-hmm. effectively, uh, and so you know I think it's it's the insets are pretty good. But I said I really like that that front image. A lot, and I liked the stuff I saw online. So uh, yeah, it looked pretty cool. And you know, I mean, it's always good. I, I I find it always worthwhile to bring in characters that are not all from the same you know ethnic background. They, we did El Diablo and stuff like that, and now we get the Butcher. I mean, I think that's that's a great thing. I, I I totally agree. The front image is just stunning. It's really really impressive. It feels a little bit like um every once in a while, Marvel and DC both will go out of their way to bring in. Big, cre- big name creators and let them do creator own stuff. And that's what this obviously was when they had the mystery, mystery books in there. Butcher, as you said, is creator owned. So it, it's them trying to reach out, but it, it's almost like it feels like an independent comic worked into the DC universe is kind of what it feels like to me in this sort of mm-hmm. situation. And, and that's okay. You know, if Butcher had taken off, then we'd be still talking about him and, and it wouldn't feel like an independent comic. It's just, that's what happens when something doesn't take big. So. I always find it interesting. This is the first of a couple examples, and I haven't noticed this in previous issues, but I noticed it a couple times here. Uh, the character on the front page is called The Butcher. Oh. And then the, the listing is simply Butcher. Hmm. Uh, I, I mean, I don't know. That just might be that you're trying to fa- – you know, you're kind of like just doing it alphabetically, and you're just getting rid of the definite article. So it's just Butcher. And maybe putting, putting Butcher, comma, The is awkward. <laughs> but I just noticed it, that it's like Butcher and then The Butcher. I like how oh, he met Black Hint- Without Batman, I like how he the way he met Black Canary is he stopped in to her flower shop uh, to get to get flowers for a funeral, and it's like of all the flower shops, oh he gosh. just happens to walk into the one run by a superhero. <laughs> Worked out well. Maybe he, maybe he's a fan of uh, Robin Hood, and he saw Sher- Sherwood Forest, so, Florist, so he had maybe to do so. that. <laughs> I don't know. Yep, yep, yep. So, all right. Well, next up is Biff. Uh, that is. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was about to say that's Dr. Andrew's favorite character, but that's Hyathis. Right, correct. So this is Biff. Uh, he's a Hawkman villain. He first appeared way back in The Brave and the Bold number 34, which is the first appearance of figure one Hawkman and Hawkgirl. So he he dates right from the very beginning. And then this current version is from Hawkworld, book one, 1989. The text is by Mark Wade. The art is by Graham Nolan and Gary Quapis, I believe. Uh, on the the main image is is him in this dark alley, and we see he's transforming his hands into these 
horrific kind of H.P. Lovecraft-looking creatures. Uh, they've got uh, these sort of drooly tongues, and then one of them has an eyeball at the end of his tongue. And we even see there's a wanted poster for, for Biff right there on the wall. I like the image a lot. It's horrific. Uh, I find the logo to be a little bit lacking. Actually, take that back. A lot lacking. It's, it's just a type. It's a font. Yeah. yeah, it's just a font. So I have to say, I, I, I've, I've spoken out against Biff quite a bit on this podcast over the years because I've, I've spoken out against Biff. Exactly. I've taken a strong position against Biff. <laughs> um, I, I liked the Hawkworld series. I felt like he was the weakest part for the first year. Uh, I just felt it was like this long chase to get Biff and it just kept going and going and going. And, and I wasn't a fan of the way he was handling the Hawkworld comic. However, all of that said, this is the single best Biff image I've ever seen. For, for this incarnation of Beth. He looks great. He looks creepy. He looks monstrous. Those things coming off his head, you know, the more stretchy stuff coming off his head just looks creepy. The perspective is really good where you're down low and the creature. Yeah, he's looming over yeah. you. Yeah. I mean, this is probably the best Beth drawing I've seen, and it's probably better than the character actually deserves. Uh, so, at least from the way he was in the Hawkworld comic. So, I, I, I love this. And I love that. The character is interesting to me. Like, do, do you mind if I talk a little bit about his history? It, Go right I know it's your issue, but you didn't read it anyway. So, um, he when when he lived on Thanagar, he was working for the cops, uh, the the wingmen, but he was secretly running guns to the downsiders uh, in exchange for drugs. So he was a drug pusher, basically, is what it worked out to be. And he tricked Katar Hall, meaning Hawkman, into killing his own father. And he ends up with the shape shifting power, and he like does all these horrific creatures. So anyway, he escapes to Earth. So that's the gist of it. But I always found that history interesting, where he was playing the system. He was basically a dirty cop, and he was a drug dealer. And it ends up with him with these shape changing powers. So the concepts were good. I just felt like again the story just kept going and going and not ending, and it took forever to get there. But the the art in this entry just is it, it totally sells it for me. All right. It's good. So uh, just to give you some perspective, Hawkworld was on issue number 10 on the shelves right now, and he is basically the main protagonist from issues Hawkworld number one through number 10. So he just got caught like this month. So this is actually fairly timely for him to appear here because it's, it is the end of his run for that book. If you want more on him, though, you can check out the blog Being Carter Hall by our friend Luke Giaconetti, who's all about Hawkman. Or you can check out the Hawkman Companion written by our buddy uh, Doug Zuisha. Or you can check out the blog Fly to the Hawkworld blog. A lot of love for Hawkman out there. Uh, you can check out more for and that for any of those areas, and of course the border is black. Rob was taking note of that for his his own binders. So, yeah, yeah absolutely, yes. Uh, <laughs> next up is Captain Comet, uh, one of the, uh, I, the one of those characters that seems to to straddle the Silver Age and the Golden Age. Yep. He first appeared in Strange Adventures number nine. June 1951. So he's five. He's five years before Flash, but he's not exactly a Golden Age character either. Uh, he's basically uh, he's a mutant. Uh, he's, yep. an, he's an early mutant, long before the X Men. He's a mutant. It's drawn by Murphy Anderson, uh, which is kind of nice. Nice to get some kind of an old hand here uh, for this listing. The big update here is that as of this listing, and he was not part of it. He's part of the Legion, the L E G I O N thing. Yep. And that was not part of him when he got a, the previous listing in the other Who's Who, which was which was also drummed by Murphy Anderson. That that entry would have been, geez, like, uh, before Crisis was even over, really, is yes. how old that one would have been, yeah. Yeah, so the mutant thing, he's born with the abilities of a man 100,000 years in the future. So that's crazy. Uh, it's a nice shot. He's got, like, you know, this typical.
typical, very 50s spaceship sitting on like a rocky planet. He's flying up out of it. And he's, you know, it's funny. His, his uh, trunks to me always look like tidy whitey underwear because it's got mm-hmm. the vertical lines and stuff. But I like the logo as ridiculous and corny as it is. You know, it's a comet sailing through the air. They've worked Captain Comet into it with giant seas. And I just, I think it's quaint. I like it. I believe it's the original logo. Oh, I, I, I would assume so. Yeah. I would assume so. Yeah. And it's, you know, I, we went back and forth about Murphy Anderson in the last version of Who's Who because some of them were great, some of them weren't so great. But I like this. I think this is a nice classic piece. It's actually a bit refreshing with uh, looking at all the 90s art we've been seeing so far. It's kind of nice to see a classic look like this. Yes, it's a stark contrast to kind of the modern styles that we're, we're seeing. I do love the line on the bit in the Powers and Weapons. It says, Comet also has a photographic memory and is, as a result of his intergalactic studies, one of the most intelligent beings in the universe. And then you look at the inset. The, the the profile and he has a smug look on his face on the inset and so I feel like that's him like yeah you betcha I am one of the smartest people in the universe um, it, it's interesting I think Captain Comet is one of those characters that like obviously was created during the sci-fi craze yep. of the 50s and then just never quite I think the, the audience just sort of shifted mm-hmm. and and they never really he never really quite was the same after that. They would use him occasionally. He had an ongoing, he had a kind of a run in um, Super Team Family. And uh, his, he was used as kind of a plot uh, device or kind of a fulcrum in um, Kingdom Come because he's the guy that's like running the, 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 the gulag. Was he really? And then the, oh, wow. Yes, he's the guy running the gulag. And then when the, when the, when the villains kill him, they kill Captain Comet. Like that's the, the line that gets crossed. Oh, wow. that okay. they, I forgot that. Superman nuts. Yeah, that's what they're like. Oh my God, they killed Captain Comet. So it was kind of like, you know, he was the the symbol of kind of goodness in 1950s simplicity. And so when the villains kill him, it's like, oh Lord, things have really gotten out of hand. So wasn't obviously he, uh, he was. Wasn't he the protagonist in the Secret Society of Supervillains for a while too? Yes. Yes. Yeah, I was thinking that. Yeah, yep. he was. Yeah. So I mean, so he's he's been somebody that, that they return to every so often. I don't think he's ever had a solo feature after he was out of Strange Adventures. Maybe, I, I don't think he's ever. Had a he might have had something in like an anthology book or something. You know, one maybe, of the, one of those one off so. anthology books. He might have had a short run strip. But yeah, otherwise you're right. Yeah, I, I think it was very clever then to put him in the acronym Legion. I mean, it's it's a space cop force and it's a great chance. I don't remember. I, I didn't read a lot of those. It's on my list of things to read. Oh, now I wonder if it's on the DC app. Ooh, I'm going to check that out. Anyway, um, and so it, you know, I'd be interested to see how he sort of played out with that group. Yeah, I mean, it says group affiliation, Legion. Yep. So it, like, straight up says he's, like, a member. Well, they've got him kind of shaking hands with real docs down there. Right. Yep, 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 yep. 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 I, I remember, yeah, I remember nice him joining. I just uh, I just didn't read enough of those issues to know how he fit. So, yeah. Uh, Legion 91, because remember, they changed the name of that book every year. Started as Legion 89 and then Legion 90. <laughs> and then Le- well, it was it – was, the idea was you had the Legion of Superheroes in the 30th century. Well, you know, this is the modern-day Legion that, in theory, inspired – the Legion of Superheroes, which is a clever idea. So they were uh, Legion 91 was on issue 26 at this point. And if you want more coverage, you should check out the Legion of Superbloggers. They do plan to cover the Legion, acronym Legion series at some point. So I'm sure you'll be able to get some from there. After the conversation you had with Derek William Crabb on the last JLI about how to file your JLEs and JLIs <laughs> and JLAs, I'm picturing all these people like, Legion 91, it's 92, 93, like – 
Okay, alphabetically it should go like this, but oh god, you know, I'm just getting so mad. I'll tell you what, some of this crap is makes it really hard on these digital uh, uh, subscription platforms too, because like right, you, you mentioned the, the the issue, yeah, like Firestorm. There's some under Firestorm, and then I got to scroll down to the T's for the Fury of Firestorm. Uh, oh. I mean, I'm sure they're going to fix that at some point, but right yeah. now I got to do that. And then then other times, yeah, like Justice League Europe and Justice League America and all that, where they change the names. Thankfully, they've caught some of those. But sometimes they don't catch it when the names change, and you gotta you gotta look under a different title. And it, it's especially interesting with Marvel when they you know they started issue one and a, and a rebooted series, and then issue fifteen is actually issue six hundred, and they <laughs> over the place. Oh my gosh, it's crazy. How us nerds suffer. <laughs> uh, so next up is uh, kind of the one of the most. I don't want to use this in a bad way, but one of the most infamous yes, listings absolutely. of Who's Who. Uh, it is Death. Uh, the character, of course, first appeared in Sandman uh, number one, I believe. Nope, number eight. Game is, uh, number eight, I'm sorry. And not, the, not that this listing would tell me. Uh, the creation of Neil Gaiman. Uh, the art is by Mike Dringenberg, and it's her sitting on a, on, uh, on a crypt, and we see the three angels of death, and there's the specter of death heading behind her, and she's, she's looking kind of simultaneously like maybe tired, but also kind of doing like a Madonna pose. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is looking, it could be right up for like the, uh, the like a prayer video. Um, but, and then of course you get to the back. Well, before you do that, let's finish the front. Oh, yes. So you see her brother, Sandman's mask in the background. Um, right. you, you, you got etched into the, the plinth she's on there, you know, only mortals die forever. Um, and then, uh, and, and there's all the sadness around her as well. So, and, and I, I, this was to represent like the three witches. Is that who those are in the background behind her? I believe so, yeah. Yeah, okay. All right, sorry. Just wanted to put all that out there. Now, oh, yeah, I didn't even notice the giant wings in the background. Oh, wow. Okay, so now we can get to the back. So you flip it over and... Okay. yeah. You flip it over, and in lieu of any information, uh, all of the basic stats are crossed out, and it simply says death, and then they're in cursive. It says one day you'll meet her. You can find out for yourself. And I, I remember at the time, when this came out, this was a very controversial listing, uh, if, if you can even use such a word for, for something like this. Uh, because there were some people who took this very seriously and took Who's Who as like it was meant to be an information gathering source. And this is completely antithetical to that to just do a gag. I like it. And I still like it because it's it's fun. It's keeping in char- literally in character with the character. Uh, and it just it just has a kind of you know, casual funness that I appreciate. So I like this list. I am the opposite. I think it goes against everything who's who has ever established. No, I'm just kidding. It's it's sensational. It's amazing. <laughs> I, I, I haven't actually met anyone that has a problem with this really, entry. It really took me on a roller coaster of emotions. <laughs> I was shocked to hear you even say someone has a problem with this. I think this is the most brilliant entry of the entire book. You know, if, if you've read the Sandman book, you understand the character. You understand the... The power is the wrong word, but the presence she has on the page and what her character means to the to the world, really, and, and to get to this entry and have that, it's like boom, that is brilliant. It's it's sensational is the best word I can come up with for it. it it's just great, and I, I can't imagine anyone being upset about. It. I guess people were, but yeah, it's fantastic and brilliant, and it's sort of like the, the Sandman entry. I don't know if you remember had reverse print. It was black background mm-hmm. with white letters, just like his word balloon. So that one in and of itself was like a whoa. This is kind of a big deal so having her her brother or his his sister uh be the same is uh it's very fitting so it's great wonderful yeah no i i like it i mean i don't want to oversell it. i just remember at the time that a couple of the guys 
because I bought this while we were still at school, and uh, a couple of guys were just like, oh, you know, we wanted to, they were just a little bad mouth in it. But that might have just been a couple of nerds in 1990 being upset. What do they want? So. She can lift 200 pounds? I mean, what, yeah. I mean, whatever. So I like group your affili- group the, affiliation. Right. The text, there is uh, the Grateful Dead. Anyway, the text, it doesn't list an author's name, which is great. Uh, they do list the artist's name, but they don't list anything there. Now, uh, at this point, Sandman, uh, the comic was on issue number 25 was what was on the shelves. And she was actually appearing in issue 25, so she, it, was, it was very contemporary for her. And, uh, of course, the border is purple for Supernatural. So there you go. There you go. How have they not make a, made a movie of this character yet? Um, well, you know, it, it was more Sandman would probably be what the story would be. But uh, you know, there's been lots and lots of talk over the ages about it. Yeah. And Neil Gaiman's mm-hmm. come close to it, I believe. But it's I, I don't think he's going to let it happen unless they do it right. But now that they've done so many of his works into film now, I mean, think about American Gods is about to come out, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe. Well, it is out. Not about to come out. Oh, it is it already out? Okay, I didn't realize that. Okay. Yeah. Um, then it seems like this wouldn't be that far of a stretch to happen. Yeah, it, I mean, because it's got the, the 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 horror angle, it's got the sort of fantasy angle, it's got a sex angle because death is super cute. Yep. I mean, you know, it's really got everything. I could see. I mean, they told in Death: The High Cost of Living, it tells a very specific death-related story. Like to me, it's like that's your movie almost. Like that, you don't even need to do the whole Sandman thing. You could just do this story. Um, so anyway, it's really cool. It's it's a great list. I, I actually. God, maybe this is just out, out, out of place, and you can edit this later if, if it shouldn't be in here. But uh, I had to comfort a friend uh, not too long ago who lost someone they cared about, and I quoted a Sandman comic book. As, as dumb as that is. Man, it's uh, not dumb. Why is that dumb? Well, it's, you feel kind of dumb when someone's in grieving and you're quoting a comic book at him. But the quote was uh, – it, it was when, when – I think Death's first appearance when she's going around and Sandman's traveling with her, and she goes to take a baby. And the babies, uh, you know, can talk because it's, you know, in its death state. And it's like, why, why me? I, I just got here. I'm just getting started. And she says, you get this, you get what everyone gets. You get a lifetime. And it's, that's always stayed with me. And um, I shared that to try and help comfort a friend. And it seemed to work uh, just to some extent. So uh, it's a powerful book. God, 30 years later still. How is there no podcast on that? Well, I, I shouldn't say it. There probably is a podcast out there that we don't know of. But there's nothing in our sphere of friends. Maybe everyone's just scared because of the daunted by the material. I, I know I am. I couldn't possibly do it justice. So, hmm. Yeah, that would be a big, big bite to take. Yeah. To try to take you know, all the literary illusions and all the other kind of stuff. But no, I, I don't think that's silly at all. It's, it's a comic book is a, a form of, of art like anything else. I mean, you could quote song lyrics to somebody to make them feel better, and you wouldn't scoff at that. That's true. So, yeah. You know, no, nothing wrong with that at all. So anyway, great listing, and uh, the next listing, bit of a change up. Yeah. The <laughs> drastic change. The dur- the Durlins, or just Durlins, excuse me, no definite article. Uh, the Alien Race that first appeared in Action Comics number 283, long time ago. And then the current version is uh, first appeared in Invasion. Hey, that would make a good podcast uh, from 1981. Um, and then it talks about that there's another version because there's 20th century Durlins. They were the ones first appeared in Action Comics 283. And then there's the 30th century Durlins, which first appeared in Action Comics 267. So that's actually before the yes. 20th century versions. Uh, and the art is by Joe Staten and Bruce Patterson. Again, the biggest change up from death you could possibly imagine. And, and it's done very, very, very cartoony. I mean, and Staten, yeah. Staten really leaned into the cartooniness with this because they're shape changers. And apparently shape changers are supposed to be funny. So uh, this one did not sit terribly well with me. Um, I just felt like it was way too cartoony, especially for the the, the way the Durlin stories normally are. They're not funny. They don't go for gags. So um, 
Yeah. Anyway, um, there's some interesting stuff in the content, though. They talk about how the Durlins kind of destroyed themselves in a war. It's called the Six-Minute War, which I thought was really clever. It's a, an atomic war, and I was like, wow, that's impressive. And then um, <laughs> it gets kind of confusing in the continuity here, and I know you're going to love this part because it's about the Legion. There was a Durlin in the 20th century who got transported to the future by accident uh, due to some machinations by Glorth, ends up in the 30th century. That Durlin then takes the form of R.J. Brand, who's the guy who funded the original Legion. He's the whole reason the Legion got formed, was because of him. And then he goes on, uh, you find out he secretly fathered Chameleon Boy, because you don't know R.J. Brand is a Durlin until much later in the series, so his son is... Uh, Chameleon Boy. So that's a whole series of retcons and retcons and more retcons all sort of rolled into one quick statement, which sort of uh, – that's kind of the, the remembering factor of Durland's is the whole stuff with R.J. Brand. So it gets a little bit complicated. But uh, My favorite part actually is the inset uh, of the, the profile, and it's just the, one of the Durland's, and it's got this hood on, and then there's this, this little like green tendril-y thing sticking out of the shadowy face, which I just enjoy. <laughs> That is what they usually look like, yeah. They don't even know what their shapes are anymore, truthfully. So I like Chameleon Boy in the background transforming into – it looks like a giant mouse or something. I don't know. Or maybe a or dog. Like a bunny. Yeah. I think it's a bunny with <laughs> giant teeth and stuff. Yeah. So you've got an orange border for aliens, so we don't get those too often. And it's written by Mark Wade, as you, and you mentioned the artist earlier. So uh, at this point, Legion of Superheroes in the five-year-later era was an issue number 17. And the Legion, acronym Legion comic, uh, Legion was on Legion 91 number 26. So again, if you want more on this, really the best place to go is Legion of Superbloggers. They cover everything you can imagine with legions so definitely check them out all right so next up is uh, dr Andrew's favorite characters <laughs> flaw and child from amethyst number 15 and hawk and dove uh, yeah and hawk and dove they are parts of the lords of chaos and flaw is this giant sort of crystallized creature and he is sort of the man uh, the, the 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 servant i should just say it literally says here the servant of child who is the smaller version of the little kid who's got the magical powers he's 410 85 pounds the art is by greg guler and scott Hanna, doing a reasonable ernie cologne facsimile uh i again initially thought that it was was ernie cologne and then i looked at it closely no not, no it isn't um these characters actually uh are also involved with the Legion, and it talks about going the, the, from the history of the 30th century Legion of Superheroes. It's been learned that a sorcerer named Wynn will soon be born into Gem World. Wynn will one day become Mordrew, one of Legion's deadliest foes. During Wynn's eventual bid for domination of all worlds and dimensions, Flaw and Child will be resurrected to engage in a mystical war. Being magical in nature, Flaw and Child will inevitably resurface time and again to menace the supernatural denizens. Of the DC universe. This must be what you feel like every time I talk about the Legion. Oh my god. I was so bored during all of that just now. Um, and I love you, bro. He did threaten us on Twitter, by the way, uh, about this entry in advance. Which I'm sure is a violation of Hippocratic Oath. <laughs> but here's the problem. As much as, yes, we love Amethyst, these characters come from the second Amethyst series, so the ongoing series, and also pretty far along into that series there, Dr. Ange. And then ends up in the Hawk and Dove series. So there's not a lot of selling points for these characters for me personally i will say the art wise though the front piece oh my gosh like if you look at child's face that is fantastic i actually looked at this and go and went did tom grummet try those because this is really good i love the art i think the art is really really sharp child is sitting there in a indian you know sort of sitting indian style and is floating and he's got sort of like the magic kind of hands going on. He's got this great sort of mischievous face and, and, and flaw is all kinds of shiny and, and looks great as his crystalline character. So, and Superman's torn capes on the ground. So, again, I think Greg Guler uh, and Scott Hanna did a great job on that. And by the way, Greg Guler was drawing uh, 
Hawk and Dove. So that's really where his connection is. Ah, yep, okay. yep. Right. So I think artistically it's great. It's just, oh, wow, that entry put me to sleep uh, the first time I read it. And it put me to sleep when Rob was reading it just now. So not my favorite iteration of it. But, again, I, I, I dig artistically what was going on here. They've got the purple supernatural border. Uh, Hawk and Dove was actually on issue 23 right now. And they had appeared about uh, six months before this in that book. And um, according to my notes, they only have eight more appearances ever. So they did sort of fade away into obscurity, as all Lords of Chaos should. What's weird is that on the inset, um, the second panel, we see a child talking to Barter, yep. uh, who, of course, we covered in a previous issue. And he's got Superman's cape. Yep. And as you mentioned, you see Superman's cape g- 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 torn on the ground on the front page. So like, you, if you didn't know, you would think these are like Superman villains. Right. Because – you know, you see Superman's cape twice in this listing, but nowhere in this listing does it mention Superman. I mean, it mentions the Legion, but it doesn't mention Superman in any way. So you'd have to kind of just intuit that some at some point he talked to Barter and got Superman's cape or something, but it doesn't – you have to kind of put that together yourself. Well, and this is 1991 and, the, and early on in the year, so it's strange that what they accidentally don't – didn't mean to do here, but that torn image of Superman's cape really becomes sort of iconic for his death because it was that flag, you know, for a long time. And this is before they actually killed right. Superman, so it's not even related, but you can't help but think that. I also like in that same panel with Barter how there's that, like, lantern or something right above Child's head. So he looks like a character mm-hmm. from The Sims um, with a little <laughs> a little diamond above their head. <laughs> it just happens to look that way. So it's written by Robert, our buddy Robert Greenberger. We should have mentioned that as well. And now, yes. while I don't think you're going to find Flaw and Child anywhere right now, especially since they don't have any comic appearances, they are connected with Hawk and Dove, which, of course, you can follow in the current, current Titan series on the DC app, which is unbelievable that I can say that as a thing. So That's right. Uh, so next up, okay, Furball Woo! from the Legion of Superheroes. I love Furball's alter ego. Bryn Londo, Wolf, Timberwolf, Lone Wolf. I, I think we get it, okay? I think I got it. The wolf, yes. First appeared in Adventure Comics number 327, drawn by Bart Sears and Mark Pennington, my former instructor, Mark Pennington. Uh, I, I just don't. Uh, oh. Look, great artwork, yes. but I'm not. How much can I take a character seriously called Furball? All right, well, let's start with the artwork. Okay, on the front. It looks amazing. It's so good. Yes, it's a great drawing. Yes. It, he's this giant uh, mammoth were creature, but it's it, the face is what sells it, man. He's got the hair coming out the ears. He's got the hair coming off the cheeks, like a beard kind of thing. And he's got this. Uh, his eyes are all in black with glowing yellow, and he's got this great sort of white glowing grin. I mean, he just looks so freaking cool. I love it. Ah, such a great character. Now. The gist of this is you, you've heard of Timberwolf, of course. I'm sure you know we've covered him enough on, on the Who's Who at some point. You know there's a character sure. named Timberwolf. So what's happened here is he has further mutated into this giant, mindless—not uh, quite the Hulk, but he's this mindless, you know, sort of Sasquatch-type creature. He doesn't even know he's Timberwolf, and neither does the Legion. He just right, ha- it mentions that at the end of the list. Yep, he just happens to be hanging out with the Legion because of, of circumstances. He's with them, and they just think of him as Furball because this kid named him, and she had to come up with a name, so she called him Furball, and it stuck. So he's almost like a—not t- quite a team pet, but he's sort of like a team pet. And every once in a while, when he's alone and things, you know, settle down, he transforms back into Timberwolf, and he's like, "Oh, what's going on? I don't understand." So, um, so that's sort of the fun part about it, and uh, I love it, and. Um, I, one thing that surprised me here when I was reading it is that his strength is – the only people that are stronger on the team than him are the Daxamites, meaning like you know, um, Monel and stuff like that, and Ultra Boy. I didn't realize T- Timberwolf was that strong, so that's pretty pretty darn impressive. The, 
to give you some timing here, uh, Legion of Superheroes again was on issue number seventeen. The the sad part is is that they are screaming towards a wretched revamp for this character. I wish they had just left it as Furball or gone back to the regular Timberwolf, but instead what they did was they tried to update him for the nineties. They made him extreme, and he come he he ends up looking more like I don't know Michael J. Fox in uh, Teen Wolf or something, and he comes back to the twentieth century and hangs out with some guy that rides a skateboard, and it's. He's supposed to be like a, you know, they were trying to play on the skateboarding craze at this point. It really didn't work. He was much better as Furball or much better as the traditional Timberwolf. So it's a, that's, a, that's a disappointing revamp on the horizon. But anyway, hats off again to Bark Sears and Mike, Mark Pennington. It's an awesome, awesome piece of artwork. On the, uh, the third inset on the back, that is totally Wolverine. That shot of him naked running through the woods with the hair yep. like that. You could say that is that is Wolverine. You wouldn't know the difference. I didn't know. It says here in the listing that he had a relationship with Ayla Rands. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, can't, can't, can't blame him for that. Yep. I mean, based on her listing in the previous issue <laughs> that we did. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I actually like I remember him as Timberwolf yep. and I kind of like that character. That's cool. But I just the name for a ball. I just it's just hard for me to, you know. But still. Well, I'm glad you brought up the Wolverine connection. I brought it up when we covered uh, Timberwolf on a previous episode, and I got blasted in the comments. So here's the deal. Uh, Why did you get blasted in the comments? Because I think I said it wrong. I think I said he was a Wolverine ripoff is what I think I said. So here's what I'm going to say, what I think I'm going to say again. And if I get it wrong, blast me in the comments again, guys. My memory is he he definitely comes first. He's 1964. So this Timberwolf actually comes first. But I don't really think he became a badass until the 80s, if I remember right. So, like, I think he's Timberwolf. He's around for a while. Then you get Wolverine on the scene, and then he's then Timberwolf starts to reflect some of the traits of Wolverine. I might have that wrong. That's the way I remember it. Anyway, what you're seeing here with him naked in the woods uh, is actually when he transforms from his furball state back into the humanoid shape. That's him, uh, like, being like, oh, after he's transformed from the furball into Timberwolf. <laughs> okay, fair enough. He's just so stinking cute. I wish they made stuffed animals right. with this guy. Okay. Uh, next, next up. Next, next up. Yeah, basically. Next up is Green Lantern John Stewart. Uh, first appeared in Green Lantern number eighty-seven. The text is by Kevin Dooley. The art is by Mark Bright and Romeo Tangal. And I am gonna straight up. This character deserved better. Yes. Uh, I think this is a very dull drawing. There's a lot of dead space. It's him flying through an intergalactic city on some planet. And it's just a lot it, – it, he's kind of like barely in the picture. And this is – I don't know. I mean I don't want to say this is like a minor quibble, but this is what we're here for. I hate the fact he doesn't get like his own logo. Like it's just the old 60s Green Lantern logo and then just like a little like label maker. Somebody uh, went John Stewart. Like it's just – this this guy is so big to the DC universe. He's one of the few characters from the Silver Age that took over for the classic version occasionally and it, and it, at a certain point reached the same level of fame. Obviously JLU fans, hello Chris and Cindy, regard, regard John Stewart you know, in many ways as the Green Lantern even over Hal Jordan. Uh, and and I just think he deserved something more compelling a, a listing than this. Now the text I think is just fine. Like it goes through his history, talks about replacing Green Lantern, but it just drawing wise, I don't think he he looks just like a kind of a scrub Green Lantern when he's way more than that. Well, he he really got a raw deal 
um, probably until JLU premiered in what the year two thousand or two thousand one or something like that. Because like yeah. yeah, I mean, he they made him Green Lantern for a short while, but then how came back? And then you know they murder his wife, and then he destroys the planet Zanji. So they kept screwing up John Stewart. And you're not wrong about the art. As as much as I love John Stewart as well, Mark Bright. Um, did a lot of good things for Green Lantern in the 80s, you know, the Emerald Dawn and the, and the main book and things like that. I like the insets. I think the insets look, insets look great. Yeah, he just – well, actually, I don't, even, I don't even like the class photo of him. I just feel like um, Mark Bright never really had a good handle on Jon Stewart. I think he did pretty well with, with uh, Hal, but he never really had a good handle on Jon Stewart. And this kind of – the imagery you're seeing here is sort of leading into – what eventually becomes the Mosaic ongoing series, which was uh, drawn by Cully Hamner, which was gorgeous. But uh, at this point, um, the, the patchwork planet had been created, and so he was sort of the guardian of this patchwork planet. And the Mosaic book launches in oh, I see um, one year from here. So, um, yeah, I, again, I just feel like John kept getting a raw deal over and over and over until Justice League Unlimited comes along. Now, there are some hardcore fans that aren't, aren't happy with that version either because they changed a lot about him. But at least you got a version of John Stewart that everyone could latch on to at just about – most people all universally like that version of John Stewart, and he became sort of the default for John Stewart. And I, I agree. I think he's one of the best Green Lanterns, without a doubt. Kyle's my personal favorite, uh, but John is probably a better Green Lantern, you know. Uh, but Kyle's is my personal favorite. Yeah, I mean, I understand why they could mention this because you don't want the listing to just be and this happened and it happened, but it doesn't mention my favorite John Stewart moment, which is Justice League of America number one ten, the man who murdered Santa Claus, <laughs> where where he uses his ring because he replaces Hal Jordan. Because Hal Jordan falls on a bar of soap and knocks himself out, and the as ring needs happens. a Green Lantern. <laughs> as that happens, the ring needs a Green Lantern, and so it grabs John Stewart. And anyway, a bunch of uh, kids, people that live in kind of like these slums, their slums get blown up by the key, and Green Lantern replaces their homes, and they're, they're like every all the rest of the Justice League gives them like a little, uh, you know, you're not supposed to use your ring to give people stuff. And he's like, well, I'm not giving them stuff. I'm just replacing what they lost, except. I rebuilt all the the structures, and I got rid of the rats, and I put out, I fixed all the holes, and I and I love that. I think that's such a great moment, written by Lynn Wein, the great, late great Lynn Wein. Um, but that that moment, I read that for the first time in a digest, mm-hmm. um, the Christmas digest, and it, it it always stuck with me. I, th- I it's one of my favorite moments in superhero comics of like that a- that act of of kindness and generosity and it mentions it here it talks about that he's a defender of the underdog and he's brought up in a lower income neighborhood in los angeles stood up for what he believed in so i just I, again i'm not criticizing the listening for not mentioning that nevertheless i think that's like to me the john stewart moment and it's too bad they just couldn't fit it in here combining that with uh hal jordan slipping on a bar of soap and bumping his head i think that sounds like a great issue actually um uh, those is, two it's together a wonderful story it's a great story i love it um, so of course the border is red for uh, for hero. And if you want more on John Stewart, definitely check out the Lantern cast with our buddies uh, Chad, Mark. But also, as you mentioned, the JLU cast with Chris and Cindy was a great place to find stuff on him too. Absolutely. Next up is Hero Hotline. The super team created by Bob Rosakis and Steven DiStefano, who are the creative team behind Amazing Man, one of my favorites. Uh, they are a hero team. They first appeared in Action Comics Weekly number 637, and then later they got their own miniseries. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, basically, it's like they're superheroes you can call. You know, like they're just kind of like rent to heroes, and you can call them, and they will come and help you out. And I mean, obviously, the book is meant to be funny. I mean, Stephen Stefano has that sort of uh, Bigfoot style. The characters are Diamondette, Hot Shot, Microwave Mom, Mister Muscle, Private Eyes, Stretch, and Voiceover. Uh, they definitely have a slight mystery men sort of feeling to them. Yeah. The the art for this listing is by Sven DiCarlo. And I was a little curious because I've never heard Me of either. Sven DiCarlo. And Sven DiCarlo's style looks a lot like Steven DiStefano. So I wrote to Steven and asked him, is that you? And he affirmed that, yes, that is you. I did not ask him. Yeah, he did not offer, and I did not ask why he was using a pseudonym, but nevertheless, we do know that that, that is Stephen DeStefano. Okay, because I, I thought the art looked amazingly like him, and it was shocking yes. considering it was somebody I'd never heard of. So I just kind of assumed they were like an a, a independent artist or something like that. I, I didn't have the time to look it up. So, okay, that makes a lot more sense. Uh, I love in the entry how everyone is holding different kinds of phones. You know, they're all the yes. classic corded phones. One person's got a cordless phone, uh, not, a, not, a, not a mobile phone, but a cordless phone, which is great. And the inset, oh my gosh, there's an inset here of a female robot with a red alert, which is her, well, you know, going back to the previous Power Girl discussion, it's her breasts. She has giant light bulbs instead of breasts that light up red alert. So, oh my gosh, uh, right there in the joke. And uh, it's totally bizarre. Now, one thing you didn't mention, yes, you can call them, but it's for like low rent superhero stuff like i have a cat stuck right. in a tree right. not you know dark side's coming that kind of stuff that's that's why right Bat, it says you don't hire batman to track down a lost engagement ring right <laughs> and uh there's a they feel like a bit like a latter day inferior five kind of thing is what it feels like it's kind of going on here there's also a lot of hints in the text as to who's in charge of them which is like a, supposedly a former superhero and uh, they they lay on the hints quite heavily but i i didn't get there i don't know who it is and i didn't read the series so i don't really know i don't did you ever read this either. No, okay. I never did. I should have because I love Amazing Man. Right. I don't know why I didn't pick up with this. And it's sort of funny because it mentions what happens at 5 o'clock when the Heroes of Hotline head for home. And it says, no problem. The Hero Hotline has a 24-hour service with a night crew, Zeep the Living Sponge, Rainbow Man, Clorino, Marie the Psychic Turtle at all to handle those after-hours emergencies. So the Hero Hotline is to the Legion of Superheroes. Is The Night Crew is to the Legion of Superheroes, yes. I guess. I would, or Super Rejects, either way, yeah. So I, yeah, I imagine this was a blast to do. Because how many times have you not uh, you sat around with your buddies and made up useless superheroes? You know, it's just funny jokes oh, to do. Yeah. Like, he can open a, a beer bottle with his hands, you know, that kind of thing, or whatever, stupid powers. And that's what these guys are. And it's it looks pretty darn funny. I don't know if the book translated that way, but it looks funny on the surface of it. Now, they appeared about 18 months ago. Ago, uh, in their miniseries, and they would only ever have three more appearances after this. And uh, if you want more, I guess the best place probably to look would be the Adventure Comics Weekly podcast that Chad hosted for a while there. I don't know whether they got to the Hero Hotline issues or not, but um, that's probably the only place you could find anyone talking about, it, I would think. And their border is red for Hero Team, which is awesome. Right. Uh, next up, Lobo. What? Uh, the night. What? what? No, it's not. What? Oh, what am I doing? I skipped ahead. I'm sorry. You skipped. I had it right in front of me. Like I, very now, I, I realize Lobo is the, the the main character of the book. But it the, was a total mistake. I just scrolled down. I have it. I have it scanned. It was Legion. I knew you were that. skipping over the Legion character. Yeah, yeah. The one Kent shaped, The one we talked about in the right. promo that yes, I've been waiting to talk Kent, about for eight issues. 
Ken, Ken Shakespeare. Ken Shakespeare, yes. Famous from our Who's Who promo. One of my favorite, favorite promos that we ever did. <laughs> um, Ken Shakespeare is a Legion of Superhero character. First appeared in Legion of Superheroes fourth series, whatever the hell that means. Number 12, which is October 1990. The art is by Chris Sprouse and Al Gordon. The text is by Tom and Mary Beerenbaum. I know Jack about this character other than what he is here. Nevertheless, love the artwork. Oh, perfect. Really okay. cool. And I love the design. I like that he kind of looks like Tom Strong okay. from America's Best Comics. I really, really dig that. Uh, and uh, he's a big dude. 6'4", 697 pounds. So this is fun. This is really fun for me. Okay, because I love this character. And it's fun to go through this journey with you. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take you down this path. All right, you ready? Oh, boy. So first of all, it's the Chris Sprouse artwork is great. It's really, really sharp. They did a great job on this entry. So, all right, you're looking at him. So uh, look on the front page, right? Very muscle-bound, yes. right? Okay. Yes. He's fast. He's strong. He's invulnerable. He's intelligent. He's got a very moral upbringing. He's wearing glasses. He's really squinty. Mm. Are you getting anywhere? And his, his middle name is Kent. Yes. Okay. So you're, you're getting there. That is exactly what he is. Now, Shakespeare very famously once wrote a rose um, by any other by name. Any other still name. a rose. That is why he is named Kent Shakespeare. At least that's the, that's the apocryphal story. Yes, this is supposed to be Clark Kent. This is supposed to be Superman, a fill-in in the, in the Legion. In the post-Crisis Legion, they lost Superboy. Uh, they had the pocket universe Superboy for a while, and then they got rid of that too. So basically they said there was never a Superman or Superboy as part of the Legion. So they decided during the five-year-later era to patch that a little bit and come up with another character named Kent Shakespeare, who essentially fills the position of a Superboy. or a, a, His power level is more like a Golden Age Superman. And that is exactly... So He's the, he's the Iron Monroe of the Legion of Super. In a lot of ways, that's not a bad analogy. The only piece that doesn't work is they didn't they didn't backfill him all the way back to Legion's beginnings, where they they, okay. they just stuck him in what's called the five year gap. I know you've heard the expression five years later. Well, yes. when you jump forward five years, that leaves a gap of five years. So he they they put him into the five year gap and said he'd been a Legion member uh, during the gap between the old series and this series. And at one point they even said he had a superhero name of impulse, but that didn't hang around long, obviously once um, Bart Allen came on the scene. But yeah, uh, I love this character because he's very much like Superman. He's, he's very moral. He's got the right upbringing. He was raised by, I, I want to say either farmers or Midwest America. Uh, he's just a really great character to get behind. It says he's from Metropolis. Yeah. Okay. Um, Oh, okay. All right. My bad. And then, uh, but the very supportive parents. Okay, there we go. Anyway, uh, he's a very likable guy. He, he's sort of a teacher at some points. He's a medical guy at different points. Very, very likable character. And again, knowing the whole time, the gag is Kent, as in Clark Kent, and Shakespeare rose by, by any other name. And uh, it just works really, really nicely. And uh, I was so thrilled he made it in here. And yes, I wrote him into the promo on purpose because I love this character so much. And sadly, so, he, okay, Legion of Superheroes is on issue number 17 at this point. So he's been on, he's been on the scene for about uh, five months. Sadly, once Zero Hour comes along, he's pretty much gone. They, they don't use him anymore because then they you know, put Superboy back into it and all that stuff. Uh, he's shown up in a few cameos here and there whenever they reference the, the previous eras of, of Legion. But for the most part, he's gone completely, which is a real shame because I, I like this character. And I'd love to hear from you Legion fans you know, in the comments. Those, some people didn't like the five-year-later era. Some people did. What did you guys think of Ken Shakespeare, though? Because I think he was a great idea to fit uh, for Superman. I think they could have actually – patched it even further and said he'd been with the Legion since the beginning and could have filled a lot of the roles for the Superboy character, but that's okay. They, they use mon for that. So, anyway, now that you know he's Superman, any, any additional thoughts? 
Um, I, again, I like the look a lot. I, I, it's interesting. It mentions that he got his he got his powers from a virus. Yeah. So it's not like he's you know an alien or that came with them or whatever. Um, I I, I mean I'd need to read these stories, so I don't know. But I I always wonder like, do you need a Superman fill in character on the Legion of Superheroes? Don't you already have? 40 bajillion D characters. True. To, to, true. Like, I don't know. Do you really need that? I don't know. I haven't read them, so maybe you do. But I, I just feel like in a, in a book with 30 other superheroes, I, I, you know, is it that big of a loss to lose Superboy? Maybe. I mean, he certainly was like the main member. I mean, the book was called Superboy and the Legitimate Superheroes <laughs> for many years. So I can understand that. And, uh, you know, I, I, I like the name. I actually like the it name. It is cool, isn't it? It's very memorable. Yeah. So. I like that. I love the and look. And again, I like the look a lot. Yep. Yeah, I think it looks cool. So, all right. Well, I'm feeling good all about right. this. Good job, Rob. Right. So, uh, again, he's red, and uh, you mentioned the writers. And all. It's amazing. Tom and Mary Beerbaum always love packing these things with text. So every square inch of this thing's covered with text. Yes. I love that. I like it. That's good. It's what it should be. Yep. And so, of course, go to Legion Super Bloggers for more information. There you go. Next up, all right, now we're finally get now we're finally at Lobo uh, again. The, officially, the '90s have arrived. Uh, <laughs> I, I was amazed to learn, and this is one of those things that I just kind of was like, "Wait, can that really be true?" And then I looked it up. This is Lobo's first Who's Who listing. Oh, that even makes sense. Though, yeah. Even though he's been around since Omega Men number three in 1983, not looking like this. You wouldn't if you never saw I've, the original I've seen it. Yeah, the Lobo. Yeah. Holy jeez. Um, but it's kind of amazing to see to, to realize that Lobo never really was much of anything until he kind of got reborn uh, as in this new super you know badass version. The text is by Kevin Dooley. The art is by Simon Bisley. But I mean, he really wasn't much of anything. So he didn't get a listing in the original Who's Who. He didn't get a listing in any of the updates. So this is his first one in his current form, and it's written in a very loose style. It talks about. That he's mostly mobile. He's got chalk white with black markings. Uh, his occupation is an intergalactic bounty hunter, mercenary, and cold-blooded killer. It mentions Lobo has one soft spot and that cold lump he calls a heart, his space dolphins. Fishes that resemble Earth dolphins but romp in the vacuum of space. He's very protective of them. Harm one of Lobo's dolphins and you've signed your death warrant. See a trend? <laughs> and it talks about it in the previous paragraphs. He's always signing people's death warrants and stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, I mean, this is the, – and, and then in the inset, much like – it's kind of funny. A couple of listings ago, we have uh, Vril Dox. Drox? Dox? Uh, Vril Dox. Vril Dox, yeah. Vril, Vril, Vril Dox shaking the hand of Captain Common and being friends. And in this inset, Lobo is just – punching real talks in the face um he, so real actually deserved it uh okay <laughs> real right. screwed lobo over really bad he basically neutered uh lobo he took away one of his powers actually literally engineered it so uh lobo would lose a specific power uh he they had a power where a drop of his blood would grow a new version of lobo um and so he they they real docs took that power away Okay, uh, in the, I have to I have to say this. this kind of pains me too, but in the in the middle panel where him with his space dolphins, yeah. I'm like that's totally Jason Momoa, <laughs> <laughs> completely Jason Momoa. It is. I it mean, is. in another world, Jason Momoa would be playing Lobo in Lobo the movie. He, he um, could do both, right? I mean, you know, okay, when me played Conan, I mean, why not? Ryan, Ryan Reynolds know? has been every you know like four or five. Different Ryan Reynolds, <laughs> yeah. Chris Chris Evans could be Human Torch in Captain America, exactly. so why not? Uh, what's his name? Um, uh, Jimon Hunsu can be in literally both Captain Marvel movies. So, oh, what, oh, was he really? Yeah, he's he's Shazam and Shazam, and he he is. <gasps> 
I forget the name of that character. You're right, that, he is the same guy in Captain Marvel and Guardians of the Galaxy. <laughs> I didn't yeah, even think yeah. about that. That's hilarious. L- literally in both Captain Marvel. So why not? Um, yes, this is a character that just completely exploded in the badass new 90s and mentions his own relatives are all dead uh he's basically just super super powerful he's got super strength he can he can fly through space on his sort of space chopper um he's constantly kind of getting involved with superman he was famously in the superman animated series i think voiced by oh shoot the guy from everyone loves yeah. raymond wait whatever his name he played he played the brother yeah. and everyone loves raymond yeah you guys are all screaming at your zone of phones now or whatever but anyway um i'm kind of amazed they haven't done a movie of this character yet I really am. It feels like this it, is just waiting to happen. It's been talked about. It certainly has. Yeah, of course it has. Sure. Yeah. So here, here's the thing. Lobo is an interesting sort of polarizing thing because basically if you step back from it, he shouldn't be in the DC universe. He is essentially a cartoon character because he, he's so ludicrous, <laughs> so bombastic. Uh, he is like a, a, I mentioned independent comics earlier. He's like an independent comic sort of character, like almost like a her- character from Milk and Cheese. You know, he is just a force of destruction. That is funny and hilarious with one-liners and jokes and all this stuff. You know, he can regenerate from a from an, an, an atom and grow back and all this. I mean, he shouldn't have been in the DC universe. He had no business being there, but they stuck him there anyway because Keith Giffen was writing the books, and that's the way to get him published. And so, but for those, it's I, I'm, well, he started in the DC universe. Though. True, I mean, yeah. That well, was the thing. Well, you know, what he, you know what he crazy. started as though in Omega Men. He was, yeah, he was a parody of Wolverine. Right. That's how we got started. Right. He starts off as a parody of – it's this interesting arc. He starts off as a parody of Wolverine, then sort of like starts to appear and everything. And then he actually became at one point in the 90s almost as popular as Wolverine. I mean we forget now how insanely popular Lobo was. He was on the yes. cover of every magazine. He was basically – like he was DC's poster boy for the extreme 90s. And – People loved him. It was once he got his monthly series. Everyone sort of universally turned on him. Like everyone suddenly, no one liked Lobo anymore when he had his own series. Oddly enough, but at the time, it's, even I forgot. Because like when I saw him on the cover of this, I'm like, oh, that guy. But then I had, once I read this entry, because this is written uh, right after the uh, first miniseries came out. The very first Lobo miniseries had just come out two months before this. I had forgotten how much I loved this character at this point. I had every single issue that he, uh, of his miniseries. I had all his JLI appearances. I just thought he was absolutely phenomenal and hilarious. And again, didn't belong in the DC universe, but that's part of the charm with seeing him side by side with Superman because it was like ludicrous. And um, it's just such an interesting character in that everyone – I don't know. I, I'm, I'm talking in circles here. I'm sorry. I, I, it's just simply because it's – an odd phenomena for something to become so explosively popular and then everyone to turn on it very quickly. Well, I think it just became too much of a good thing. You know, you be. think you want it all the time and then you get it and you're like, yeah, maybe not. By the way, Brad Garrett. Yes, uh, that the is actor correct. That played it. Um, I have a story about Lobo related to the Joe Kubert school and I feel like I've told it on the show before, but I don't know when I would have because this is Lobo's first listing. Okay. So I don't know. So I'll tell if, – if you've heard this story, I apologize. But uh, if you haven't, this is the story. So this is – this would be 91, 92 when we had Joe Kubert as our instructor. And um, Lobo, of course, in 91, 92, massively popular. It's mm-hmm. huge. And they – DC put out like a slipcase oh. edition. <laughs> you have told the yeah, story. Right. Yes. You know, okay, right, go you ahead. Know this is coming. And it was a slipcase edition and it was like a trade paperback of like I guess probably one of the miniseries and then it came with like a poster or something. And then exclusive to the little box set was a book called The Wit and Wisdom of Lobo. 
And the gag of that is that it's a blank book. <laughs> it's original, presumably an original cover by Simon Bisley or something. And then it's just like 20 blank pages. That's the gag. It's wit and wisdom. It doesn't have any. So anyway, that came up at some point during a discussion with Joe Kubert. And Joe Kubert had no idea what we were talking about. He didn't know who Lobo was. He was, what is that? We explained him, oh, he's a bounty hunter. And of course, all the guys like, he's awesome. <laughs> and then we mentioned the wit and wisdom book. And Joe was like, "When are you guys? You know, what's that?" And we said, "Oh, it's a, and we explained to Joe exactly what it was." And then we said, "Joe, yeah, it's a blank book." And Joe's head just fell. <laughs> it just fell. And I think this is it. Just it seemed like the kind of thing where, it's like, you know, Joe Cooper, of course, worked as an editor at DC Comics for many years, and some one of the greatest guys ever to do it. And I think just that kind of tomfoolery. <laughs> Just, just kind of, I made Joe sad. So he, he just head kind of fell <laughs> down to his chest a little, and then we moved on. And that was, but it was just, it was sort of funny to have all these guys all excitedly tell Joe about this fun thing, and then to see this legend just kind of be like, <sighs> all right. Anyway, <laughs> let's go back to giving Rob a C minus on his assignment. Right. <laughs> That's awesome. That is absolutely awesome. I've heard lots of talk about that book before and how people had very varying reactions to it, the love of it and the anger of it. And that's probably exactly what Keith Giffen was planning. Uh, this really was, I don't know that we've mentioned Keith at this point, but yes, this was Keith Giffen's baby. So he went from doing, you know, a, a lot of superhero comics, but also doing sort of on the side, the uh, ambush bug stuff, which was very quirky right. and was like, did, a, they, did the heckler. Yep. Well, the, where I was going, though, was like the ambush bug was sort of his way to look at the DC universe in a non-serious way. It was his way to poke fun at the DC universe using Ambush Bug. Well, then Lobo becomes insanely popular, and he kind of – Ambush Bug goes to the side. And Lobo becomes his way, his window to look at the DC universe and make fun of it. And so it, you know, he's always – Keith was always looking for a way to you know, rib the ones you love, and that's where Lobo was. And again, it's, it's so funny to think he started off as a parody of a violent character and then later on became sort of the poster boy for violent characters, which is so crazy. So, oh, wow, I just I had a lot to say, and I just kept going in circles on it. I'm sorry, folks. So, at this point, yes, he's an active member of the Legion uh, Legion 91, the acronym series, on, which is on issue 26. And I, the only place I could think of, really, uh, for people to talk, think, hear more about Lobo is there's probably a couple of issues uh, or episodes of From Crisis to Crisis where he gets talked about. Also, I talked about him not too long ago on my JLI podcast as well because he had some issues uh, with the JLI, which was probably his first breakout exposure now i think about it because he had omega men right for a while but then jli is really where he got the first t chance to get like mainstream attention and from there it just snowballed all right okay speak uh, next up is a character equally as popular absolutely new new clon infinity inc drawn by uh chris bosniak and dennis janky the texas by robert greenberger i don't know i kid new clon we kind of make fun of all the infinity Inc. characters because you know i think like individually they're 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 a little shaky I, I love the original infinity inc book i will say especially the first 12 drawn by jerry the extraordinary orway that's a great comic i mean i will die on that hill that was a great <laughs> book and i and i love them in all I loved them. Now, I really thought that was a great book. When the, the, the JSAers drink from the waters of insanity, there's this great issue where Superman and Power Girl get into a fight and he punches Power Girl in the face, which is like unbelievable to see Superman punch a girl in the face, even though it's Power Girl. So I like Infinity Inc. as a team. I think when you give them individual listings like this, you're a little like, eh, yeah, maybe I don't know. Um, the, the artwork is fine. I, the perspective of this drives me nuts 
because Nuclon is standing on the roof of a building, mm-hmm. and he is straight on, but you're looking down at the buildings. So, like, the perspective makes no sense. Well, I, um, I, I like it. I just think there's something wrong with the legs. Like, the legs look too short to me. I just – I don't know. And then the, and then the inset, uh, the portrait, his neck is wider than his head. Yep. Uh, and so he just looks like a monster. I mean, he doesn't look like a huge. I know he's the super, super huge guy. He's bulked up. He's seven six, two hundred ninety seven pounds. But he just, I don't know. He just, it, to me, he's it's the like the, the 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 ultimate of this kind of like bodybuilder mentality, the Arnold Schwarzenegger thing, except taken to an absurd degree. So uh, you know, I, I, mean, I don't take, know. I don't want to too mean about it, but. Yeah. I'll take the reverse position. I like the art. Again, other than the legs, the le- right. there's something not right with the legs. But they're too short. They're yeah. they're 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 too short. But I love the face uh, you know, on the front side and the mohawk, and I like the angle with the buildings down. Actually, I think it's kind of an cre- interesting creative choice, whether it's actually correct or not. It, it's a comic book. I don't mind reality being bent. So I I think it's a fun looking drawing, and I guess part of the reason I like it. At first, I thought it looked a little um, I don't know, maybe a little Dennis Cohen. Really in the face is kind of what I was seeing at first, um, and, and no one else will probably agree with me, but that's why I was seeing it. And then, um, you know, Wozniak, he's, he's kind of all over the board in this era. Some of his artwork's amazing, and some of it's not so good. And this, I think this is a nice piece. I like it. The, the thing about Nuclon is he is one of the least offensive or least boring, I guess, members of the of the Infinity Inc. Like, there's, there's nothing necessarily wrong with him. But there's also not anything necessarily all that interesting with him at this point either. I think that's the major failing is that there was really nothing to love about him. For me, at least until he was in the JSA series, you know, the later one of the 90s and 2000s where he becomes Adam Smasher. Then I feel like they really did some interesting stuff with the character. But up till then, I just feel like he was kind of like, oh, he's that other guy from Infinity Inc. He even joins the JLA like right after Zero Hour with Blue he Devil. Did, yes. Which is yes. a period of the Justice League that almost no one likes. But um, nope. even though it had Blue Devil in it. And um, again, nothing terribly memorable from that there. So He's the godson of the original Adam. That, that was his lineage. Yep. Uh, and we even see one of the insets, Al Pratt sitting there. And he's lifting uh, – Nuclon is lifting up uh, – uh, Al Albert is his name, Al. Yeah. Lifting up like 5,000 pounds or something in a barbell or whatever. And then we see him fighting Solomon Grundy. And then uh, there's another shot with him with Obsidian and Jade. So, yeah. and, and his origin goes deeper than that. It really tied into All-Star Squadron. They did this whole right. storyline with uh, his father and stuff like that in All-Star Squadron. So I get really kind of deep into it. But uh, again, it just uh, I, I, at this point in history, I wish there was more to latch on to. So uh, at this point, when this was published, Infinity Inc. had been canceled um, – quite a while ago, actually three years before this. And he'd only had one or two appearances since then and really uh, won't really go on anything major for another three years until he joins the JLA. All right. All right, next up, here we go. The Phantom Stranger, uh, one of my favorite characters of all time, drawn by Kieran Dwyer and George Freeman. I don't, I mean, no insult to Kieran Dwyer, but if you have George Freeman, you don't need anything else. <laughs> uh, the text is by Mark Wade. Uh, this it reflects the uh, that secret origins issue where it gives four possible origins for the Phantom Stranger, and it mentions a few of them here. It says none of them are conclusive. Nobody seems to know uh, when he was uh, what, what his origin uh, really is. Uh, the front image is a this image, this front one here, is to me the closest you will get to a classic 
uh, uh, return to the original Who's Who mm. because it's got oh. him standing there. It's got him standing there, and his cape is flowing. And he's got his hand out, and he's got that boss ass medallion uh, and the turtleneck and the whole thing. And then the background is this space background, and we see him in the background, and it's done in basically a surprint. It's not really a surprint because it's just full color or whatever, but it's never it's monochromatic for the most part. So you could have run this in the original Who's Who. This would have been the perfect listing. It would look it would look the same. You know, I knew I loved um, it, and I knew I loved the background, but I didn't know why. But now I do. Yeah, this is one of the few that doesn't have like just a full color background. Uh, and so on the inset, we see the 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 uh, one of this cult member, and he's about to rescue this girl who's about to be stabbed. We see him facing uh, the, the demon, which is from that he fought in the Phantom Stranger miniseries, written by Paul Kupperberg, by the way. And then we see him taking on Eclipso. And one of the things I find interesting, um, it's formerly occasional ally with the Justice League of America. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's, his occupation is a conscience advocator. Me too. <laughs> his first appearance is uh, his first appearance is Fan of Stranger, first series number one, August September nineteen fifty two. There was a for those who don't know, there was a Phantom Stranger series in the mid fifties, drawn yeah. by Carmen Infantino, and he doesn't. It if DC had wanted to post crisis, they could have very easily wiped that series out of continuity and said uh, that the Phantom Stranger debuted in showcase number 80, which was, uh, which is features that covered by Neil Adams. That is clearly the beginning of this Phantom Stranger. The one from the fifties is kind of just like a, a guy in a regular trench coat. And he kind of is this sort of ghost that hovers on the side or almost like a ghost hunter in some ways. He's really not the same character. Mm. Other than other than the name, was he like a like a horror host, like Cain and Abel or something? No, like that? he wasn't a host. No, because he interacted with the characters. Okay, uh, but but he and you know he was like, oh, there's this woman being uh, being stalked by this demon. I'm gonna I'm gonna help her and and you know, stuff like that. But he was just a guy in a trench coat. Like hmm. he just looked like a hat, and he just looked like a detective. So they were clearly sort of leaning in on that sort of old 1950s radio style, like a lights out kind of thing. Uh, and he was. And he was also the host. I mean, he did talk to the he talked to the camera, you know, the, the the reader and stuff. He's like, I am the Phantom Stranger. But I mean, it's sort of funny that post crisis they could have just said, well, that was some other version. Mm-hmm. We're just starting over. But they didn't. Here he's they, they flat out say his first appearance is from this 1950 series. Interesting. Okay. Well, I noticed something in the text too where they talk about how he had a, a close bond with Bruce Gordon, which of course is uh, the Eclipso stuff. Now, was that? established earlier or was that just came about in the miniseries because i know he fought eclipso in the miniseries that was that was retro written that was never anything in the comics okay. up until until later on because i know they both came up kind of in the 60s as you know right. sort of becoming popular so i didn't know if there was a connection right. okay all right well uh, i looked for like current appearances and all that oh my gosh it's this i don't know how anyone would ever document all of this in like say a blog or something because he has a zillion freaking appearances like he's <laughs> always being published so i'm not even going to bother with where he was or what he was doing at this point but just know that he was in that secret origins not too long ago so there you go uh is, is there a website out there anywhere where someone might be able to find well, out more i i i would not point you to my old phantom changer blog cuz all the images are missing for uh, this story uh, that too long and boring to get into so the the site is not really useful to anybody anymore but uh, Maybe someday I will update it. I don't know. It does mention Cassandra Kraft, his erstwhile girlfriend, which I like, which are from the Len Wein, Jim Aparo stories. And if you've never read those comics, do yourself a favor and get the showcase that reprints them because they are fan 
fantastic. I've got the Shirtcase on my shelf. I haven't read it, though. They are, oh my god, they are so good. I've always loved this character. I think it's really interesting. Um, it's it's sort of funny. He gets into his powers and weapons. It gets a little vague about what he can do. It says that he, you know, doesn't he doesn't really cast spells in a traditional sense. Uh, there is yet to see any place he cannot reach by teleportation, which I kind of like. Um, I said I just love this character. I love his visual. I just think he's just super super cool. And I I I am a huge fan of George Freeman. I think he's one of the George Freeman's one of the great underrated comic book artists. And so. Um, I don't know how much of this is him and how much of this is Kieran Dwyer, but they're a great combo, and I'm very, very pleased that this character got such a nice listing. Uh, it's a gorgeous listing. Also, another nice thing about this character too is his costume is so straightforward. Like it's, I mean, it's detailed and everything, but it's it's a real clothes thing. So I yeah. have seen some amazing kick-ass uh, cosplay of this costume. Oh before. yeah, yeah. People can Super. really, really do it up. It. It's great. Love it. All right, next up is another winner on the visual <sighs> Yes, states. it is. I uh, love this one. Punch and Julie by Carl Kiesel, uh, uh, ink, Pencils and Inks. The text is by Robert Greenberger. They, of course, first appeared in Captain Adam number 85. So they're Captain Adam villains. They're Charlton yep, villains. Correct. Uh, and they've been repurposed into members of the Suicide Squad. And the, the funny thing, the, what the, the great bit about this is that Carl Kiesel really went nuts with the design and that the drawing is the two of them at home and it's got their, their infant son uh, who has tied up their dog. It's kind of don't like that. I knew you wouldn't. Uh, a little bit there. But anyway, it's done as a parody of a Saturday evening post Norman Rockwell cover. And yep. it even has the same font. It's got their wanted poster in the background. It's got this um, halo behind them, which was something Norman Rockwell used. So yep. it looks just like one of those covers. It is a wonderfully clever image and it also tells you everything you kind of need to know about the characters their twisted sort of view of family and americana and stuff it's really great kiesel just crushes it with this one this is such a great concept yeah punch is sitting in the chair like it, it, it very 1950 setting he's sitting in the chair he's got the he's got a pipe in his in between his teeth right, he's, bubbles. Bubbles. he's got yeah. his hand on the butt of julie who's of course very very sexy and uh she but she's giggling and the child you talk about the dog being tied up he's also pointing a gun at the dog's head yes, also he yeah. other things like wonder woman there's like action figure toy of wonder woman being hung by her own lasso the batmobile has been smashed a toy batmobile has been smashed by a hammer did you see Aquaman in the background being eaten by the shark, which is hilarious? Where, where's Aquaman being by, eaten by behind, the shark? Uh, behind Baby's head. Behind Baby's head on the ground. Oh, you're, oh my goodness, yeah. you're right. Oh, look at that. Oh, wow, there's, I never even noticed that. That's great. And there's a, there's a plastic man ball, too. Yeah. The best, though, is the building blocks. Like, you know, a child have ah, yes, building yes. blocks with letters they spelled out incorrectly, but they've spelled out extortion, which is freaking <laughs> hilarious. They, they, they've actually framed uh, their wanted poster in the background, like a like a point of pride next to their home sweet home framed picture, which is absolutely brilliant. Now I asked Carl Kiesel about this one, and I think it's actually on a previous episode when I talked to him. But basically, he didn't really have any use for these characters in the old days. But then when John Ostrander started writing them in uh, in Suicide Squad, it made them just absolutely insane, but in a charming, fun kind of deadly, dangerous, crazy way. Uh, he, Carl Kiesel fell in love with them, and it really went to show that there is no such thing as a bad character. They're just waiting for the right writer, and he felt like you know the fact that Austin could turn them around this much and make them that interesting. He was dying to do the Who's Who entry for it, and he knocked this thing out of the park. Oh my gosh, it's so good! It is so amazingly good. I love. Yeah, I mean, not only is it drawn very well, but just the the, con- the conceit. 
yes. is great of the idea of recasting these two psychopaths as, you know, the classic American family. And, you know, it's kind of funny. You see Julie's a member of the Suicide Squad. It's like, well, if it wasn't for the Batman animated series, this might have been Margot Robbie playing Julie. Yes. Of, you know, <laughs> she is very much the proto Harlequin. I mean, uh, DC yeah. was always kind of like chasing this Harlequin character without knowing it. Uh, I've mentioned on previous episodes, there's a few other characters that have been sort of Harlequin esque. And she was definitely, uh, you know, early Harlequin type stuff that, you know, a lot of the traits you would see in Harlequin in the Batman animated series sort of was coming from here. And, um, yeah, I love where they talk about they moved to suburbia and it says God help their neighbors, which is hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> Robert Greenberger did a great job writing this text. It's so, so much fun. It says uh, reformed criminal in quotes. Reformed. Yep. <laughs> now, here's something interesting. So, you know, you've heard of this Doomsday Clock comic that Jeff Johns has done, right? Of course, yeah. Okay. The idea is it's taking the Watchmen characters and putting them in the DC universe. Well, he's introduced a couple of new characters from the Watchmen universe that I didn't get and someone had to explain to me and point it out. He's introduced a female character named Marionette and a male character named the Mime. And I wasn't getting it till someone said, think about it. The Charlton, you know, the Watchmen are the Charlton heroes. Mime and Marionette are Punch and Julie, Charlton villains. I'm like, Oh my gosh, that's really, really clever, and it works really, really well. So there, so if you hadn't realized that in the Doomsday Clock, that's where they come from is these two characters. Ah, okay. So right. to give you, put this in a frame of reference for you, time period, um, on the shelves with Suicide Squad number 51, they hadn't been seen in Suicide Squad since issue number 39, so that actually had been gone for a while. And they did appear in Hawk and Dove four months before this and really would not be seen again for about four more years after this, which is such a shame because you'd think this entry would just, you know, hurtle them into some sort of miniseries or something wonderful. But uh, it just took a while. So, yep, yeah, you mentioned uh, the border is black for villains, of course. And uh, for more on Punch and Julie, you should check out the Task Force X podcast with our buddy Aaron Head Moss. And again, I love this piece so much. Oh, so good. Yeah. yeah. Next up, Raven from the Teen Titans, uh, drawn by Tom Grumman and Al Vey. Uh, the text is by Mark Wade. Uh, of course, this is again the Teen Titans character. This version, this I had long ago not. I long ago not read, stopped reading the Teen Titans, so I was unfamiliar with her and her white getup oh, okay. uh, here instead of the blue. I mean, I saw it in like pictures here and there. I love the design of it. I think that this design is fantastic. Where she's coming out of the cloud, she's she's creating this sort of cloud uh, mist around her, and there's these rings, and her cape is forming this sort of it, it's forming it's forming a larger version of the shape of her hood mm-hmm. where it's this kind of bows down and then it the, the the white just goes right off to the edge of the frame so it sort of frames the image while it's still being part of the image and it's got her legs and picking up from their dress uh i it looks great and this i don't know was this anybody's ever favorite teen titan just because she was so tortured i mean of course, she's the daughter of trigon and just from what i remember she was always just such a drip yes and of course you can understand it because She's tortured and, you know, whatever. But uh, you, I just, you know, the, the the New Teen Titans characters were so full of life and verve and excitement. And she was always the one that was like, you know, I sense great darkness. <laughs> you know, all right. Okay. All right. All right. All right. Or manipulating Wally West. Yeah. And she's nobody's favorite in the comics at all. Everyone kind of hates her. And maybe there's somebody out there. But really, she's done much better for herself in other media. I mean, when she – in the Teen Titans cartoon where she's playing like the emo – uh, sort of yeah, character. Right, yeah. Everyone loves that version. She's great. And now you talk about the design here. All they really did was switch the dark blue for white. I mean, the right. the pose, the the way the cape does it, the clouds. All this is straight up from Perez's design. They just flipped the the darker color to the lighter color when she purged Trigon from her, at least for now, because it's always coming back. That kind of thing. I, I also had little 
particular use for this character. Again, other than in the cartoon where she was funny, I like her in Tiny Titans. And surprisingly, I really liked her in the Titans TV series as well. So a lot of use for the character outside of the comic books is is kind of a weird thing. And one of the things I like that George Perez did when he designed the new Teen Titans, and maybe this is an apocryphal story, but it seems to hold up in in looking back at this stuff, is he designed specifically Raven, Wonder Girl, and Starfire all to have different figures. Um, Raven was sort of a more demure, um, uh, tiny you know, a, a sort of body. You mentioned she's 5'1", 125, yep. so that is conspicuously short. But she's also not terribly chesty, whereas Donna was a little more full-figured, a little more uh, curvish, curvaceous. And then you get Starfire, who's ridiculously curvy. So he specifically right. tried to design girls that would look different from the other in silhouette, or, you know, they, they clearly look different from one. They weren't all the same body type, which I thought was, you know, that's kind of an interesting idea. Almost as if people have different body types. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, um, um, her powers were always – I found them interesting because they were unique where she could pull pain out of people. Like I don't remember another character really having that kind of power. So I thought that was an interesting idea. But again, like, there was really – she was such a drag, such a drag. And it was always like, it, it, oh, Trigon, them fighting against Trigon. Oh, he's evil. Yeah, we get it. I know. Let's just go fight Trigon. Don't bitch about it. It's a Counselor Troy. Shut up, Okay. It mentions, wow. It mentions in the final paragraph, it says she established herself as a powerful empath. Her greatest victory came from when she succumbed to her father's power, then fought back and won, forever freeing herself of his evil and long less allowing herself to experience ambition, emotions on her own. I assume that it's in that fight that she went from blue to white. Yeah, I think that it was. It doesn't mention that, but I assume that's the change. I think that was a, like the, the climactic battle of the first story arc within the Baxter series in New Teen Titans, I think is what it was. Ah, okay. But um, they should have put forever in quotes. Uh, because not too long after this, she ends up turning to evil again, and she wears – she goes way super crazy 90s, dude. It's way off the rails. Like she's okay. – her clothes are basically just a couple of strips of cloth across her – I think her chest and her, and her private nether regions downstairs. I think she's wearing a thong too. I mean just like – She's almost completely naked, and she's super evil, and she shows up when Dick and Corey get married, and she kisses Corey and, and plants a demon seed inside of her or something. I mean, it's just – it was that way That sounds awesome. I got to read that. Right. Uh, Marv Wolfman <laughs> – You're making it sound really good. I know. Marv Wolfman has said many times that he hit writer's block about that time. Right, so right, it's, uh, right, right. Oof, it was not good. So anyway. All right. Um, okay. Interesting fact. Uh, the, the Titans TV series on the DC app, the very first opening is on Raven, and it starts off by just saying Traverse City, Michigan, which is where I was born. So like when that came up, I was like, huh? It actually caught my attention, and I maybe that's why I'm a little favorable to her. I don't know. Anyway, uh, New Titans was on issue number 75 at this point, uh, well into the Titans hunt. Your border is red, of course. Uh, Tom, Did we say Tom Grumman Alvey drew it? I wasn't really I did. Okay. I did. And, of course, Mark Wade wrote it. Uh, you get the creative eye credit here for Marv Wolfman and George Perez, which is nice. And if you want more on Raven, um, you could check out the Titans uh, TV show. You could check out the Pop Culture Affidavit blog by our buddy Tom Panarese, who talks a lot about Titans. Or you can listen to the podcast Titan Up the Defense. So there you go. All right. Next up, the Society of Sin, or just Society of Sin, uh, who are basically originally known as the Brotherhood of Evil. And so you've got uh, the Hunsen, I forget how exactly you say his name, uh, Warp, Phobia, uh, Plasmus, uh, and then you've got the older members, which is Monsieur Mala and uh, the uh, General Immortus mm-hmm. and uh, Par- uh, Gargwax and the Brain, like that, drawn by John Byrne. Uh, which is cool. I really like these characters. The, the 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 drawing is 
it's just them standing around. Yeah. Um, it's not terribly dynamic. And look, I think it looks a little rushed. For John Byrne, I think you can tell. I think other artists would be perfectly happy with this. But like the, some of the detail in like on General and Mortis in the back, it looks a little sketched in. So it looks a little a little he had to kind of bang this one out. Nevertheless, you know I like I wonder if this was shot from his pencils without being inked. I don't think so. Well look look at Monsignor Mala. Uh and look yeah. at the blacks. They're not full on blacks. Look at Hungen. Um yeah, Mortis's face. I I, I wonder if this was just shot from the pencils because um, we'll talk a little bit about that later. But it wouldn't have been the first time they did that for Who's Who. Maybe yeah, that's true. And uh, there is a new member, Trinity, who they mention here. Uh, she's uh, it doesn't mention much about her. It says they adopted a new member, Trinity, and a new name, the Society of Sin. Trinity has kind of like a like a weird pie face kind of yeah, it's thing. Yeah, very strange. Where it's just, it's just a face inside of this circular design uh, that doesn't get doesn't say anything else about her, and it doesn't really get into why they changed their name. It just oh, says at the very why. end. That you, okay, but I'm saying this listing doesn't really get into it. It just mentions it. Um, it mentions that the Trinity has three phases, time, war, and chaos, each which possesses its own power. And on the back, it features these panels, and on the top panel is the newest members, and then the bottom panel is the older members, which are the original uh, Brotherhood of Evil. You know, the more I look at this, the more I'm thinking that maybe it was – really, I, I really do mean that. I think it was shot from the pencils because it looks like stuff that Byrne would have cleaned up in the inking process is what it looks like to me. Mm. But um, so the reason they changed their name was in 1989, when uh, uh, Graham Morrison was writing the Doom Patrol book, he introduced the Brotherhood of Dada, which we talked about a few uh, issues of Who's Who ago, where I and I gushed and gushed and gushed, and I won't do it again here, I promise. But I love them so much. Anyway, he introduced the Brotherhood of Dada, which was the continuation of the Brotherhood of Evil. Basically, Mr. Nobody said, you know, it's not the Brotherhood of Evil anymore, it's the Brotherhood of Dada. So then the Brotherhood of Evil kind of had to rename themselves. So when they appeared in New, Teen, in New Titans Annual Number 6, they couldn't call themselves Brotherhood of Evil because that name had sort of been stolen. So they uh, changed it to Society of Sin. So that's why the name changed. It was really a real world reason not in not a very good in comic book reason okay all right fair enough yep uh i i like these characters despite their kind of goofy nature they're just again to me they're perfect doom patrol villains they just have that same kind of strange uh sort of just weird visual i mean again they got a giant ape by the way this is this the only time that the same characters have gotten two listings in the same issue of who's who because of course we already covered Monsieur Mala and the brain a couple of pages ago. Um, here they are again. I'm sure it's happened before. I mean, you know, Maybe, like... Yeah, there had to be some character that was in a team and then got the yeah, own listing. like we covered Justice yeah. League of America. Well, like, mm, man, nobody was in that one. But I'm sure there's been a, a repeat of here before. I, it must have happened. Yeah. Anyway, it doesn't happen a lot. Uh, but, if, I, you know, I like it. They're, they're fun. They're fun, weird strange characters and burn clearly has an affection for them. Although I know a lot of people don't seem to have an affection for the burn run of doing patrol. <laughs> well, uh, they can't even, can't even mention it on the, the promo for, well, the, for well, the burn run them. was still in the future at this point. And if you remember, I, I had forgotten this till I started really thinking about it. Burn drew a whole bunch of the doom patrol entries in the original who's who. Yes, he did. And, which was interesting because obviously he had a love for the characters, but hadn't worked with them. But he did a whole he bunch did the of the chief. Stuff. He did Robo Man, yep. Phobia. He didn't do Phobia, but he did Chief Robot Man. Uh, who else? Who else? Did oh, he I, can't do? I forget. At least, was, it was at a bunch. Least those two. Yeah. So, and and that's why it sort of continue on, continues on here. So I, I find it fascinating. Uh, for me, I, I've always thought Phobia was really interesting. Warp. I want to like, but doesn't do much for me. Plasmus is the other one I found interesting. Uh, of course, Brain and Amala are great, but the rest of them I don't have a lot of use for. 
but um, it's interesting ideas. You know, I, I kind of liked them uh, when when they would do really particularly evil shit of stuff. Oops, sorry. Um, <laughs> uh, for more on them, you can check out the Waiting for Doom podcast again, the Doom Patrol PV show, TV show as well, or Pop Culture Affidavit for their Teen Titans appearances and Tighten Up at the Defense. So there's a lot of opportunities to find them. All right. Next up, another complete winner. Uh, listing was the Spectre. Drawn by Matt Wagner, who I would say is on par with John K. Snyder as the secret hero of the Loose Leaf uh, Who's Who iteration. Because I think every single listing he has done has been a winner. And it's got this great – I mean it's Matt Wagner and his most cartoony. It's got Jim Cargan. It was the specter rising up from the grave of Jim Cargan and he's got his hand out. There's this purple sky. There's a little cartoony half moon. There's a bunch of graves. There's a weeping angel there and then on the right. And there's a bunch of bats flying around. And then on the back, you've got the insets. You've got Jim Corrigan's body rising up. You've got a shot of the specter cutting a guy in half with scissors, which is rem- you know, obviously a callback to the Jim Apparel Mike Fleischer stories. And then the other one where he's punching that big demon guy in the stomach as he's being hit over the head with the earth. Right. Um, I – there is nothing I don't love about this. I just think it's fantastic. It's the Spectre. He's one of those characters can do anything. So much like Ares, his powers and weapons are just kind of a little too brief. It's like he can fly, is intangible, can turn invisible, solidify his own ectoplasm, and inhabit inanimate, inanimate matter. He can pull uh, people into his own being where all laws of reality are subject to his will. Here he is supreme. He can also invade a person's mind, their very soul. But this is far more dangerous for these psychic battles occur in the, for- in the foe's home ground. It is here the Spectre may be most vulnerable. Like – they just have to gloss over it all because this guy can literally do anything. Yeah, it's all whatever the story needs. Um, okay, so I love Matt Wagner. I love Matt Wagner a lot. I, you know, Grendel stuff, the same mystery theater, pretty much every single Who's Who entry he's drawn up until this point. I've really, really <clears> liked. <throat> I know. I'm sorry. This one doesn't do a lot for me. Uh, I'm a pretty big Spectre fan, which uh, if you if you listen to Midnight the Podcasting Hour, you unfortunately listen to me talk, I think, straight for four hours about how much I love the Spectre and didn't give uh, Ryan a chance to even breathe. Um, I love this character a lot. And this entry, I don't know. It, it's just not enough for me. Like, I love the moon. I love the graveyard. But the Spectre himself is a letdown to me. And I, the back art actually is a huge letdown to me. I feel like he just phoned it in. This is not one that I really, really like. I'm sorry. I feel like Matt Wagner could have given us something amazing. Like, uh, didn't he do the Hour Man one? That, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, like, that was amazing. Like, there's some – I feel like it's just not there. So it, it I like it. I just don't love it. So I'm sorry. Now, the back, though. Wow, the text is amazing. John Ostinger wrote in a really compelling uh, text on it. I mean, you know, we've talked about it before. Sometimes the text is okay. Sometimes it's really good. This is great. It tells the story again. It's very, very compelling. And this is even before Ostinger was writing the book. This is 18 months before he was writing the Spectre book. So clearly he was already formulating and going, you know what? This is something I want to do. And uh, really wrote the hell out of this entry. And I think it's absolutely phenomenal. So um, so it's purple for Supernatural. So, you know, argument could be made. It could be red for Hero as well, you know? It's a member of the Justice Society, for Pete's sakes. A founding member of the Justice Society. So you're, so you're you saying gotta, you should be what, Hero. What does it take to be a Hero? I mean, look, Supernatural obviously stretches across the heroes and villains. So uh, I the, the, the Supernatural label supersedes whether you're a hero or a villain. So I guess he should technically be a supernatural character, but I mean, good Lord, he's a hero. Again, he's a founding member of the justice society of America. Yeah. 
it's good stuff. So, um, so yeah. Uh, now, did you talk about the first appearance? I mean, going all I did. More more fun comics number fifty two, nineteen forty. So he goes way back. Yes, he does. Way way back. Yes, he does. Yeah. So uh, at this point, his he had his own series in the um, in the late eighties. A lot of people don't necessarily remember that, but it was canceled uh, about eighteen months before this. And as I said, eighteen months from now, he was going to have his own series again, which was going to be very ninety spirits of vengeance kind of thing. Great series by Austin Dora Mandrake. I think a lot of people love it. He had a million cameos going on at this point, and really, you know, the, the best place to finally probably find more on him is the the secret origins episode uh that ryan did on that one on the specter was very very good and then again uh midnight the podcasting hour he's been covering those fleischer aparo issues and uh, i was on one of those and uh it's probably a good place to find some coverage on specter i love that character a lot all right next up is strata from the l period e period g period blah 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 blah, blah, blah. just say acronym uh, legion <laughs> the acronym legion uh his name is just strata he first appeared in Excuse me? She. Oh, you're right. I'm sorry. She. So, so, yeah. Strata first appeared in Invasion number two, drawn, written by Mark Wade, drawn by Bill Ray. And she is just this sort of giant hulking character, and we see her smashing through this wall, and there's all these guys flying in all directions. I know nothing about this character. The listing didn't do anything for me in terms of the text, but I love this drawing. I'm a big fan of Bill Ray. We Bill Ray did a lot of stuff for the previous Who's Who iteration. He mostly served as an inker, but here he's doing both pencils and inks, and it, he's channeling Kirby. But it's also very cartoony in a lot of ways. And you see the Strata just smashing through, like, and it's a little bit of a forced perspective. I absolutely love this drawing. Again, the character, eh, but the visual is fantastic. And it mentions the powers. It's Strata's form as a result of heavy gravity evolution. Its density gives her superhuman strength and makes her nearly invulnerable. And she kind of looks like a like a crystallized thing. Yeah, it's like if the thing and uh, flaw. Had a baby. <laughs> well, the way she started off in in after invasion, uh, you didn't know what. You just assumed she was a guy. Uh, she looked like Block from the Legion. She was made of hard rock, and then it turns out what happens is eventually the the rock sheds, and there's a crystalline. You find out though through several issues, the rock sheds, and there's a crystalline. You know, body underneath, and that's when they find out their gender. So that's when she found out she was going to be a girl. Was when uh, Lobo cracked her shell, and the crystalline started to shine through, and then it all falls off, and she's crystal. And you're like, oh, okay, she's she's now a girl. In fact, they make a reference in here. I thought it was funny you refer to him as a guy at first, because in here they actually reference the fact that a lot of people assume the Strata is a guy just because of the big size and everything. So. Uh, neat member of the Acronym Legion. Uh, really like the character. Uh, very, very cool sort of um, – very lovable character I guess you could say. They just uh, – I don't know. Maybe I'm putting more into it. But I always felt like they kind of – the big Rocky guys always seem to be like the emotional core of the team it seems to be. And maybe I put more on Strata than was really there. But that's kind of my memory of the character. So um, Some weird typesetting here though. I don't know if you noticed. The second column ends and goes right to the – but it, it ends in a weird place and goes up to the third column. Yeah. The, ty- the typesetting's yeah. yep. off. On that one, which is a little weird, but yeah, there's a big bunch of dead space, and then the next line is Strata will be remembered by all right. Radians as a legendary hero. Yeah, a little strange. And that was the nice uh, misdirection too. Is uh, like I think when Legion series started, all of us assumed she was like a predecessor to Block or like an ancestor of Block, and then to find out she's completely different made it, it made it even more interesting. So again, uh, Legion ninety one was on issue number twenty six. You should check out the Legion Super Bloggers for more information. Yeah, like I said, I have no idea why uh, they picked Bill Ray to do this, uh, but I'm glad they did because I love Bill Ray. 
and I'm just I'm thrilled that they sort of just picked a weird because as far as I know, Bill Ray has no connection. Not to, to my knowledge either. To to Legion in any way. Wasn't he also and a colorist so, for a while too? I want to say. Uh, I might be imagining that. I don't I might know be about that. He did a lot of stuff for Mad Magazine, Cracked Magazine, stuff like that. Mostly a humor artist, so it's kind of interesting that they would do it here. What's interesting is the images on the back are not cartoony. It's the front one that's very cartoony. Yeah, they're a little more straight. The, the, yeah, especially more the one like uh, in the middle there you know, is, is very straightforward. Right. Uh, so next up is Turtle, the fearsome turtle. <laughs> uh, from, another font, from all, by the way. Another, yeah, another very boring font. From All Flash, number 21. He goes all the way back to 1946. Um, drawn, written by Mark Wade, drawn masterfully as always by Mike Parabek, the late great Mike Parabek and Jose Marzen. Um, this character was originally drawn in the first Who's Who, um, by, okay, I'm going to make sure I get this straight. There are two characters. Uh, one is called Turtle Man Mm -hmm. and he appeared in showcase number four to fight Barry Allen and that fight Barry Allen. That's the listing that appeared in the original who's who. Um, although it's confusing because they list both characters in that version, but the version that you see is drawn, drawn by P- uh, uh, Peter Laird, by the way, from new, from the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Oh my um, gosh. I forgot about that. Right. right. Is, is first appeared in showcase number four. This is the original one that first appeared in all flash, Number 21. So this is basically the Earth 2 version the of, of this character. Correct. Yeah, the one flawed Jay Garrick. And we see him in his sort of headquarters, and there's the, his henchman behind him. There's a, woman, a couple of women behind him. And so he's sitting there plotting. He kind of looks like Brother Theodore kind of thing. He's bald. But he's got his long hair on the sides. So the second Turtle Man got the preponderance, got, got the listing essentially in the old Huzu. And now you're, they're going back to the older one for this list. And, and the names are slightly different. There's Turtle and Turtle Man, and it actually gets right, a little right. confusing in the entry. Like, I got lost a couple of times reading, like, Turtle Turtle Man, what, which one, wait, which one, who is what? And you're like, you know what, screw it. It's, it's the old man from the Jake Garrick film. That's what I need to know. So, Right. I, I do love that the, the whole idea that there's this technology to slow people down, uh, and, and Turtle Man originally had that, and I understand Turtle's using it now as well, so it, it, that's really cool. And, of course, it, Mike Paraback, oh, my gosh. The, the yeah. stuff on the back, he's fighting Jay, you know, Turtle is fighting Jay Garrick, and then uh, I guess that's Turtle Man fighting Barry Allen, but it's the same chair as the, few, the other versions. So I don't quite know. But either way, it's just gorgeously illustrated. It's really, really wonderful. And he's basically a criminal mastermind. Like, he yep. doesn't have any powers. He's just, like, a really super smart dude and knows how to come up with special gimmicks and rob people and stuff like that. So Yep. Yeah. Um, cool. So very, very cool. And Flash at this point on the shelves was issue 49, and uh, Turtle hadn't appeared. Uh, he appeared 15 months ago in Flash at this point. So he'd been kind of out of circulation for a little while. All right. So next up, Ventriloquist, drawn by, again, I keep have to keep saying this, the late, great Norm Brayfogle. Mm. Uh, Texas by Peter Sanderson. The shot is the vent- <laughs> the ventriloquist and his dummy uh, sitting in a uh, nice restaurant. The ventriloquist club, actually, right. as a matter of fact, he's got a nice uh, guy, got a guy's meal in front of him, got soup, whatever. And the the drum, the dummy is uh, sort of screaming its head off, as you can see. And he's just looking there, kind of passive, and just yelling at the the viewer and then you've got the back on the inset and there's the shot of batman at the ventriloquist club punching the crap out of the ventriloquist as we see the the doll's head get thrown out the thing the the detail i love the most about this is the profile shot because there are two shots there is one of the ventriloquist and one of the dummy which is called scarface yep 
they're they're two different panels. They have two different. They have a panel border, but yet they are the same image yes. stretch across both panels, which I just think is a nice detail. So there, there's a lot to say on this thing. Like first of all, I love on the front side. Uh, it, it's great imagery where you know, Scarface is screaming. You can just hear him turning his B's into G's. You know, got man and everything. Uh, and I love the ventriloquist mouth is off to the side. You know how ventriloquists like talk out of the side of their mouth kind of thing. I love that little tiny detail that Norm Brayfogle put in there. That's really really great. Uh, I love that the puppet's holding a piano under his arm because you know the pianos where you piano cases where you hide your uh, you know your guns or whatever. So I thought that was really clever. And so here here a couple different things about this thing. Uh, first of all, the, the ventriloquist himself it lists it now. He's a heavy guy, right? He's he's, he's Portly. He, he's, he's got a big fat neck. He looks like he's got jowls. He's, he's heavyweight. And yet it says he's five foot seven, 142 pounds. Now, usually Rob's yeah. the one who gets hung up on weight, okay? But this yep. time I took it personal because I'm five foot eight. And I work my ass off to stay 160. You know, I really work hard at this. Yeah, 142 is absurd. No freaking way that this fat guy, you know, I'm not trying to be mean about weight. I'm just saying he, they draw him large is 142 pounds at basically the same height as me. No way. So now it's like it's funny. It's like the height and weight, whenever you get worked up about it, I just I kind of laugh. I'm like, oh, oh, oh. but now that affects me, I'm like, damn it. I have been working my butt off for a year now to lose weight. And so <laughs> I take this personally. So maybe you need to carry a puppet around or something. Maybe well, that I burns calories. I tell you. So uh, the, the the thing about this character is always always fascinating. It was very very creepy as far as knowing who was in charge. Whether Scarface was actually it would leave you wondering sometimes if Scarface was actually alive uh, or whether Ventriloquist was really the brains behind it. Now this is written by Peter Sanderson. I think if this was written by Alan Grant, I think we would have got a very different entry because this entry is definitive about the fact that it's ventriloquist. All of it's ventriloquist, and Scarface is just a dummy. They 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 don't even give an illusions that Scarface might be real. And so I, you know, here's my I'm going to play my what if alternate universe. Wouldn't it have been great if they did this entry as it is then, and then did a Scarface entry and wrote it the other way. How Scarface is alive, <laughs> and Scarface is the one who's putting up with Ventriloquist the whole time. That would have been a masterstroke to do both of those, to have a Ventriloquist entry and a Scarface entry. That would have been the way to do it. And I think if this had, that would have been really fun. Yeah. And I think if this had come out a couple years later, after he had appeared in Batman the Animated Series, I think you might have got that. You know, because that would have been the character had sort of broken out. He's really probably the the biggest breakout character of the Alan Grant Norm Brayfogle era I would say uh, that, that that really made it out there so I, I just think that was a really missed opportunity but anyway I that, that's my that's my fan casting sort of concept of what I would have loved to have seen I have no idea like this is I'm sure this is never gonna happen but I would love to see I just in my in my mind because we know that they're working on a new Batman movie sure uh, Matt Reeves is working on a Batman movie and apparently he wants to take it much more street level uh-huh. like much more of a detective story and like I'm imagining this sequence and I thought I heard that the villain is black mask I thought I heard that oh, or maybe that's okay. that'd be a, and that'd I be love a black one. I love black mask I think black mask is one of the great underrated later period Batman villains. I would, I'm imagining a scene of like, you know, Batman breaking in, Batman chasing after Black Mask and they run into like a criminal, like a kind of like a, a criminal hideout. Oh, okay. And on stage doing a show is a ventriloquist. Oh. Like you just have a guy that looks like this with a dummy and you just see him in the background and you maybe hear him for a second and you just kind of like pepper it in. You're like, okay, if we want to do something with this, we can. But otherwise, if not, it's just a fun little detail in the background. Well, I don't know, that would be really cool. Back when the, the, Oh gosh, the, the 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 first wave of Batman movies with you know um, uh, Batman and Batman Forever, Michael Batman Keaton. and Robin, 
Michael Caine. Yeah. yeah. Wasn't um, wasn't Robin Williams going to play the ventriloquist in one of those? No, he's going to be the Riddler. Oh, he's going to be the Riddler? Yes, they offered the Riddler to him. Oh, for some reason. Okay. But help me out. And it, folks, help me out in the comments then. I could have sworn somebody was attached. Because you know, remember, like, um, Howard Stern was attached to the Scarecrow at one point and all this stuff. I thought somebody was attached to Ventriloquist. Maybe I imagined it, but oh well. Either way. Um, so at this point, on the shelves of Batman number 461, and Ventriloquist had appeared as recently as five months before this. So for more information on this character, you should definitely check out Batman the Animated Series or check out the Batman Nightcast right here on our network. All right, final listing, Yuga Khan. Yuga Khan? Uh, Yuga Khan? I'm sorry. Okay. No, you're not. Uh, He first (laughs) appeared in New Gods number 17, which is not the 70s series. It's the 90s series. Uh, His uh, his occupation is a monarch, conqueror. Uh, (laughs) He is the father of Darkseid. Yes. uh, Which doesn't even really seem to make sense. You can't really think of Darkseid as having, like, parents or something. Somebody giving birth to Darkseid. So we see him there in Apocalypse, and in the background are a bunch of subjects pulling down a Darkseid statue. And Jiminy Christmas, that is a big statue. Yes, it is. I mean, from the the perspective, that is like – you're trying to pull down a skyscraper. Yeah, Basically pretty much. At this point, I, I'm not sure where these people think they're going to go <laughs> if they manage to topple uh, this statue because they're not going to be able to run away in time. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Yuga Khan is pretty big all on his own. He is eight foot, five hundred and fifty pounds, uh, and he's just it's one of the most powerful beings in the universe. Virtually, virtually, virtually invulnerable to harm, can fly through space and hyperspace at incredible speeds without projection, and can wield and project extraordinary amounts of energy enough to destroy planets. Yuga Khan can drain the life energies of all the living beings of a planet into himself, thereby killing them. So he's got a bit of a Galactus in him as well. Uh, I am completely unfamiliar with this character other than this listing. I didn't read the New God series in the 90s, so I, I don't know anything about him other than what we see here. I never read this run either. However, I, I read so well, I, I shouldn't say that. I read some of this run. I did not get this far into the series. So I didn't see Yuga Khan, but I had a friend that was reading at the time, and he was just absolutely over the moon, thought it was such a great idea. And I conceptually, I love the idea, because you, you mentioned Darkseid's parents. Well, ever since Darkseid's first few appearances, we've known about his mother. Because, uh, you know, remember, um, they, they tricked, um, what's his face, in a mur- the, the assassin, into killing his mother. Um, Hegra. Yeah, they killed Hegra. So we knew about his mother all this time. So That's true. Yeah. So the idea of him having a father just sort of makes perfect sense. And the way they've written, at least here in the Who's Who entry, it's father-like son. I mean, he's got this incredible <laughs> ambition. He's all-powerful. He wants to take over. He can't, he can't imagine anyone else being as powerful as him. I mean, it's basically just like Darkseid. So I love this sort of concept that his dad comes back and says, no, thanks, I got this, and takes back over everything. So I'm really on board with that. I, I don't know how the execution worked out, but conceptually, I really dig it. I do love the inset, the senior picture on the back. I mean, I know it's Rick Hoberg and Will Bleiberg. I love these two together. But that little senior picture looks like Art Adams to me. I mean, I can see the Rick Hoberg in it. It's clearly Rick Hoberg. Mm-hmm. But it mm-hmm. does look a lot very Art Adams as well. Rick Hoberg was a very underrated artist. He was so good. Oh, my, well, I mean, still a good artist. But I, man, I love his stuff. You know, when he did Stranger for the Ultraverse and stuff like that, so freaking good. Anyway, um, it's a fun, fun concept. I dig it. I, I like the inset pictures where he's, you know, killing these people and then he's hurting Darkseid and then he's part of the source wall very very well put together idea and uh i'd like to hear from you folks who have read the series what you guys thought of it now he was a an ongoing concern in the new god series from issue 17 to issue 21 now by this point issue 24 was on the shelf so his story was over but uh interesting idea and i guess at some point at some point they'll get to it on the kirby cast maybe if they keep covering new god stuff outside of kirby's era i'm not really sure 
All right. Well, that's it. Oof. We finished it. It's the eighth issue in the in the books. Now, I ask you every month, Rob, what are your favorite entries from this issue? Well, I think this is a uh, particularly art great issue. I think there are a bunch of really fantastic listings here, uh, whether it be the Spectre. Mm. Uh, I think the Spectre one is fantastic. I love the Strata one. Mm. Uh, I think that is really good. Uh, what, I don't know. What else am I what, – what are your, some of your favorites? Uh, my, my, looking them all my absolute favorite is Punch and Julie. Uh, I think Punch and Julie is really good. The Phantom Stranger is really Phantom good. Phantom Stranger is very good. I love the backside of the death entry. So the art's fine. Drinking Bird's the art, but the really backside is really yeah. I think the Bith art is great. Again, the perspective and the monsters and stuff like that. The best Bith picture I've ever seen. Uh, I like Furball, but I'm biased on that one, obviously. Uh, I like Ken Shakespeare. Again, I'm biased. I realize that. Ken Shakespeare, that one's really yep. good. Ken Shakespeare one's yep. really good. Raven by Tom Grummet. I mean, whether we don't like the character or not, or we don't care for the character all that much, Tom Grummet's illustration, though, is fantastic. So it's really, really good. It's interesting. On the on, on the page, it's white. And on the back cover, they colored her a little square yellow. I guess it was just to mm-hmm. make it a little more exciting. I don't know. But um, so that's, that's all we have there on that. Uh, but, yeah. So I guess um, – uh, we, we need to go to a podcast promo break. That's right. So we'll go to a podcast promo break, and when we come back, we're going to do Who's Who's, How's and Why's, your listener feedback from the last issue of Who's Who. The world's strongest hero. The warrior from a hidden island. The master of super speed. The wielder of the weapon from beyond the stars. The champion of the seven seas. They are the only ones standing before a world beyond the brink of collapse. Their mission, abolish war and crime, eliminate poverty and hunger, clean the environment, cure disease, even stop death itself. They promise within a year to make the world a utopia, no matter how many lines they might need to cross. Coming soon to the Pulp to Pixel Network, the Squadron Supreme Cast. An exploration of Mark Gruenwald's epic 1985 Squadron Supreme miniseries. A look at the heroes, the villains, the fine lines separating them, and how this miniseries continues to play an influence in mainstream superhero comics. Phew! Now the great show wrapped. Sure was. Now, uh, time to move on to our serious business. Time for the monthly team meeting. So, Team WFD, roll call. Activate. Host, Mike. I'm here, bro. Webmaster, Doug. Hey, everybody. Kapow. Tech support, Rifty. Huzzah. It is I, Rifty. Ascendian Twitter account, Wilfred. Hello, humans. And me, other host, Paul. Okay, everyone present. Now let's look at our upcoming schedule because we've got some big things coming up. I think our first order of business should be the new segment, Thoughts. Is the new segment about my triumphant return to your world? What the f***? Holy s***, son of a... Who let the candle maker in here? Well, Fred... There are far too many humans on this show. I'm just trying to balance things out. Look, I'm, so- I'm sorry, Candlemaker. There's nothing really for you in the upcoming episodes. Plus, let's be honest, you, you had your 15 minutes. What? what? How dare you? I'm King Kandor. Yeah, 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 whatever. Look, um, we've got a new segment launching. We've got some guests planned, Jail May 2 to look forward to. Not to mention our 100th episode coming up, and we really don't have room for you. I'm sorry. But, 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 what? Uh, uh, fine. Whatever. Whatever. You mortals. And your show. show. Suck. Oh, yeah? 
Well, we might suck, but we can still blow you out, just like Dorothy the Ape Face Girl did. Yeah, in your face, King Candle. Oh, ha, ha, very funny. funny. Bye, Bye, losers. losers. See you in hell. Man, that guy was a jerk. Waiting for Doom, the world's greatest Doom Patrol podcast, available on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and podbean.com. And we're back, and it's time for Who's Who, How's and Why's, which is your feedback from recent issues of the Who's Who podcast. So first up is the iTunes reviews, and please, folks, if you could, please leave more iTunes reviews. They really, really help to raise the profile of the show and bring more fans in and and bring more Who's Who people in here so we can all talk and have fun and go banter and everything. Because we get more people every month, which would be wonderful. And if you don't – if you. um, and if you haven't left us a Who's Who review, um, I'm please, it would really, really help. And if you choose not to, then I'm just going to come to your house and burn all your Who's Who comics in your binders. So take that. Uh, Rob, we have a new Who's Who review uh, for on iTunes. You want to read it for us? Luckily, they're available digitally now. So even if you do burn them, they're not gone forever. I'm so, going to burn the tablets too. Okay. We got, got an uh, iTunes review from Johnny Boy H. from Bama. Uh, he says, this show is tied for the title of most consistently entertaining podcast on an amazing network. Its only rival has an ensemble cast dominated by exotic and insightful French-Canadian women. Uh, <laughs> that one's also slightly less safe for work. Robin Shanks is discuss- – Are you talking about Ryan? I think so. That one's also slightly safer work. Rob and Jake's discussion are entertaining on almost any topic, but who's who is on a paralleled cornucopia of rapid-fire material. Furthermore, the informative and humorous audience comments alone would be worth the price of admission, which is paid in time, usually while commuting. I would have reviewed sooner, but Shag went through an ugly phase, not a Batman phase, at the beginning. He actually attempted to bully listeners into reviewing. Look at that. One must never bow to terrorism, not even when the threat is entirely (laughs) negligible, as in this case. Now that I'm finally reviewing this wonderful podcast, I shall comply with the obligations of the Fire and Water Network user agreement written by Rob and correct Shag in some things. First, First, Shag, you have commented that you tend to call the OSS OSI by mistake. Your tone indicated that you think this is a silly mistake, as though OSI only existed in Eagle Eye and the $6 million man, unlike the OSS Heroes of World War II. Let me assure you, the Air Force Office of Special Investigations is real. It is analogous to the Department of the Navy's NCIS, except the OSI employs both active duty military and civilian investigators. NCIS investigators are all civilians. The second correction regards an omission. The balloon buster is closely based on a real World War I hero, First Lieutenant Frank Luke of Arizona. Luke was the second aviator to earn the Medal of Honor and the first to receive it posthumously, i.e. the usual way. No one is bucking for a Medal of Honor. Luke Air Force Base outside of Phoenix is named for him. The X-Men Comics blog I'm the Gun covers Luke's history, as do many other sources on the web. Considering what he contributed to the character and what it cost him, he deserves a mention. So who actually is who? Well, here it is. Rob is Bert. Shag is Ernie. Think about it. <laughs> First off, thank you to John Boy H. from Bama. That was an that extensive was- review. Well, first, you notice, folks, we read his entire review on the air. That's part of the deal. If you do an right. iTunes review, we will read the whole thing on the air. But, wow, I mean, there was some seriously interesting stuff in there. I, I did not know the OSI was real. I did think it was just part of $6 million, man. So thank you for that education. Obviously, uh, it's merited, and, and there's a lot of people out there that deserve credit for that. And then the information about the real-life balloon buster. Wow. I mean, just fascinating stuff. I really sincerely appreciate you sharing that with us, John Boy. That's fantastic. And, by the way, the Burton Ernie analogy, dead on. Well done, sir. Well played. <laughs> I do you disagree? No, not particularly. So. Okay, all right, folks. Well, thank you so much to John Boy, and I look forward to reading the rest of your uh, uh, 
iTunes reviews next month. All right. Or you know the consequence, people. All right. So the feedback we're going to read now is pulled from uh, Who's Who number seven, that episode. And mainly we're going to be discussing our website comments and also emails we received. Just as a reminder, we're not going to be pulling uh, anything outside of the website comments, iTunes reviews, and emails just because from social media, there's, there's just been so much. I mean, we had 80 plus comments again this month. So please, if you want to leave a comment on the show, the best place is our website, firewaterpodcast.com. Go to the Who's Who show and leave it there. We will still at the end uh, take a moment to thank all the folks that have shared our show and acknowledge uh, them helping to promote it. We're just not going to get into the comments. So awesome. All right. right. First up, Robert Ward, my pal. He says, Degenerates Anonymous, the little-known alternate title for the Fire and Water Podcast Network. (laughs) Obviously, that must have been something we said on the show. I don't even remember remember anymore. (laughs) But I love it. <laughs> you know, I, after we recorded the last episode, I went on Facebook the next morning and I said, you know, uh, the morning after recording a Who's Who podcast is a lot like having a hangover. You know, you, you, you everything's a bit of a blur. You you invite a lot of substances. In my case, it's like Diet Mountain Dew and Girl Scout cookies. You, you said a lot of things. You probably insulted some friends. You don't remember it all, and you're pretty sure evidence will surface later. So, I mean, that's pretty much <laughs> why, why I don't remember a lot of this after the fact. Uh, so, uh, tonight is blueberry pie and Diet Mountain Dew, by the way. Anyway. Uh, Treat yourself so, next- so well. You know, if I'm going to work out, I, I got to have something to burn off, right? So then we heard from Sean, who goes by Sergey Bomba, and uh, wrote in regarding the new gods. I had talked about these little-known characters in the new, in Darkseid's Elite, and he goes, Necromina and Infernus of Darkseid's Elite were creations of Mark Evanier's new god series that was running at the time of this Who's Who series. They were one-off characters who literally never appeared again, so not so elite, I guess. Very, very true. Uh, Sean was also the first person to point out uh, Rick Hedden. Remember last issue, we talked about the Creeper, and we we're like, wow, who, does, who is this artist? Where did he come from? Wow. Well, it turns out that his name was misspelled on the entry, which in this digital age made it very, very hard to find the true artist's name. So Sean wrote in saying, you know, it's Rick Hedden. His name was misspelled wrong here, uh, which and this is not a good issue for typos. Uh, he says Todd McSweeney uh, didn't seem to – they didn't seem to do a lot of comics work, but the majority of their work, much like Mark Nelson who popped up in this issue as well, appears to have been in Dark Horse in its early days. Absolutely true and more on them later. Then uh, Tom Panarese popped in, uh, popped in from Pop Culture Affidavit in, in Country. He says, okay, so I'm not the only one who thinks that um, – oh, talking about the Batgirl entry. Uh, he says he, he wasn't the only one who thought that might be Barry Kitson's signature because at the same time uh, he thought there was a little bit of McGuire in Babs's face. So, all right. Thank you so much, Tom. Then we heard from Zoom Yukonori. He's part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. He does shows such as the Done in One Wonders Podcast Wonder Show, Zoom Love Sam, which is part of the FW uh, Records uh, series, and he also does a few other things in the network. He wrote in to say uh, Barbara Gordon was indeed shot twice because uh, you were shocked by that. You thought I that – uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, it was shot in the Cormorant story, which actually happened before the crisis, uh, starting in Detective Comics issue 491, cover dated June 1980. Then I misspoke in the last episode, which happens a lot, but I misspoke and said that Major Force killed Kyle Rainier's mother. Uh, I got that wrong. It was just a, it was a Girl Scout fueled mistake. It was actually a Girl Scout cookie fueled mistake. It was actually uh, Major Force killed Kyle's girlfriend. So what Zoom wrote into right was uh, actually killed Kyle's girlfriend, Alex DeWitt, in Green Lantern, issue number 54. He pretended to kill Kyle's mother in issue 180, but the head in the oven was just a mannequin, evidently very lifelike. Uh, then he said, I don't even know this, Kyle's mother would then later be killed by Sinestro's sentient virus Despotellus, or whatever, as revealed in the Sinestro Corps war special. I didn't know Kyle's mom was killed. That's heartbreaking. I loved Kyle's mom. Ugh, that's just horrible. More uh, re- 
fridging people is just stupid. Mm, man. Uh, he says Perry White had actually always been the editor of the Daily Planet, which was first named in Action Comics number one, issued number 23, April 1940, a few months before Perry White's first appearance in Superman Volume 1, issue 7, covered in November 1940. Why the name change from the Daily Star, first named in Superman Volume 1, issue 2, covered in fall 1939, is never explained in this story. Thank you, <laughs> Zoom. I didn't. I think I knew that, but I forgot it. Forget about a lot right. of stuff when we're in hour six of the Who's Who show. Right, exactly. Uh, then we heard from Aaron Head Moss from the Headcast uh, Network. It includes shows such as Task Force X Podcast and many more. Aaron said, Checkmate first – because I was saying I thought John Byrne had something to do with the creation of Checkmate. And Aaron addresses that. So Checkmate first appeared in Action Comics 598 by John Byrne. And he says he spoke with Paul Kupperberg on episode 19 of the Task Force X Podcast. And he did confirm, if his memory hasn't failed him, that well. Kupperberg and uh, Steve Irwin did indeed create Checkmate. John Byrd did have some input and helped with the knight's costume design. Now, that does make a lot of sense there. That, that sort of makes sense to me. All right. And then he goes on to say, and yes, the whole Oracle being around while Batgirl was still – well, Babs was still Batgirl is indeed retconned. Uh, and it and doesn't appear to have been followed up anywhere else. Oracle was created after the killing joke when John Ostrander and Kim Yale wanted to do something with the character to rescue her from the damage of killing joke did to her. So, yes, we had talked a little bit last time how they had retconned that Oracle had been around before she was shot. But, yeah, clearly that was just some uh, retconning by Barbara Randall, which never really went anywhere. Uh, Michel Fife left a comment. Of course, he's a comics professional. He does Bloodstrike for Image Comics, J.J. for IDW, and his own creator-owned Copra, and is a wonderful human being. He says, uh, <laughs> "I well, we've met him. We've broke bread with the man. He's a wonderful, yes, wonderful man. He says, he's been on uh, the JLI podcast, too. That's right. He says, I bet that the BK and the Barbara Gordon profile since for Barry Kitson, the credits were just wrong. McGuire and Kessel made a great team, a scene here. And, of course, he provides the link to the Who's Who page they did of the Joker. Everybody called us on this one. We Shag yes. and I just completely goofed on this one. Of course, as soon as we, as soon as the episode was posted, it became clear. It's like, no, of course we got that wrong because neither one of us should have looked at that and said that's McGuire and Kessel. Clearly, right. it isn't. So we were, I don't know what we were. We were drunk or something or high. I don't know what was going on, but no, I know exactly what it was. Is is that the entry said Batgirl was created by Bob Kane. And it was, uh, you know, written by Barbara Kessel. So we kept focusing on BK as either Bob Kane or, or Barbara Kessel. When in reality, we should have figured out it was Barry Kitson. But that's where the BK focus was. In and I didn't recognize the signature. I didn't realize that was Barry Kitson's signature. So that that's I, totally but, on us. Though. But I'm looking at that, and I like, how did I think for one moment that Kevin McGuire drew that? Because it mm, looked anything like Kevin McGuire. So that's fair. Yeah, that's yeah. fair. Uh, now, Michelle chimed in also on the Creeper profile. So at the same time, Sean earlier told us that it, uh, about Rick Hedden. Uh, Michelle was chiming in in the same way at the same time. He goes uh, about uh, about Rick Hedden. He says that the inker's name was wrong, too. It's actually Tom McWeeny, who, according to Tom McWeeny's comment on Facebook, and Tom wrote this. He says, the Creeper piece wound up being part of a larger pitch to bring back the character. We got an editor behind it, began to work on the story, but it fell apart when DC reshuffled the character deck, and the Creeper wound up with a different, less interested editor. Uh, he says, we also pitched a Metal Men miniseries and a Metamorpho one-shot. You can imagine how well those went over in 1991. The editor looked at us like we were nuts. <laughs> uh, so, man, that, with that team doing that Creeper image, that would have been amazing. I would have loved to have seen that. 
Uh, Michelle also points out that Linda Medley and Art Adams, because I, I wasn't familiar with Linda Medley at all, uh, they had worked together before in Action Comics number 600. They did a pinup with a slew of characters, including JLI characters and Firestorm. Look at that. That was crazy. I had no idea. It made me very happy to see that. <laughs> oh, by the way, I should mention uh, Tom McWeeny. His brother Jim was one of my yeah. instructors at the Joe Kubert School. Oh, that's crazy. Okay. Did you pass that class? Uh, I, well, I passed them all, but not great. <laughs> not by a lot, let's say. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to take a dig. I, I didn't know it would have hit too close to home. No. Okay. Um, then we heard from our buddy Jeff Tischer. It says, regarding the Comixology digital release, I was a little unhappy with some of the entries, so I took time to go in and fix them. I color corrected all the pages they messed up, fixed minor color corrections that have always bothered me, fixed the cutoff artwork, and added back the missing entries, like Dr. Light and Cobra, who weren't in the digital versions. I also redid the borders so they're all consistent. So he says, if anyone's interested in getting CBZ copies of these, you know, um, that he says uh, he, anyone that already owns the series, yeah, let him know, and he'll figure out how to get them to you. Wow, that's amazing, Jeff. That's a, wow. He spends a lot of time on digital recreations and stuff, and I'm impressed. That's very, very nice. Uh, regarding Brother Power, I really think the geek has only had six appearances, and a third of those are who's who entries. <laughs> <laughs> At this point, he's probably not wrong uh, about Elongated Man. He says, it's a relief that thanks to Gail Simone, Ralph and Sue are back together and well in comics. I didn't know that happened. No, I didn't either. Thank you, Gail Simone. It must have been in the Rebirth era. So thank you so much for bringing Elongated Man and Sue back to us. Thank you, Gail. Uh, as far as Justice League America, he says it always bugged me that they didn't do a Justice League Europe entry with because uh, remember the Justice League Europe were on the on the monitor screen there. Right. He goes uh, they, he wanted them to do a Justice League Europe entry with the JLA on their monitor screen showing them. I didn't realize there's no Justice League Europe entry. I never picked up on that until this point, and now I'm pissed. Like I'm really really bothered by this. Oh. Uh, then Jeff Tischer also, by the way, remember he was posted that Justice League roster, that amazing graphic. I told you guys it's freaking huge. Don't try and download it to your phone. He's done one for the Legion as well. He says, Rob, you can skip it. Uh, and there's a link <laughs> in our who's in the who's who podcast number seven comments. Go out there, check out the link. It's equally amazing as other work. And then finally, he posted something on Facebook uh, that uh, now I don't normally pull Facebook comments, but this one's from Steve Lytle, so I thought it was okay. Uh, he had uh, Jeff had posted the block piece from Who's Who, and Steve Lytle commented saying, I remember not knowing who the inker would be in that piece, and I was a little surprised when they printed the scan off the pencil drawing. So yes, the original block drawing and the original who's who was taken straight from Steel Idol's pencils, which is part of the reason I was harping on that, this issue about John Byrne and the Doom Patrol, uh, sorry, Society of Sin entry. So that's what made me think about that. Maybe so. I didn't realize. Yep. That's really cool. I like that. Uh, we got a comment from our pal Chuck Coletto, who just did the recently held Bowling Green State University Batman Conference, which a bunch of our pals attended. Did you look at the agenda for that? It was amazing. Yes, it looked really cool. So Dan Mishkin was there, and Stella was there, and Donovan Morgan Grant, a bunch of – it was uh, – it looked really cool. That's something I, I – I wish I could have gone to that. It would have been really <sighs> interesting. to be there. Yeah. Yep. Uh, he says, still, ma- still making my way through the episode. You mentioned Kirby's demon design as a highlight. It's inspired by a 1937 Prince Valiant sequence where he wears a demon mask. The more you know. And he sends us some panels. This frustrates the living hell out of me because I knew this. I remembered mm. seeing these panels. I remember reading about such a thing. I still thought it was a great design because it means like, hey, if you know where to steal it from, steal, steal the best. And I just completely forgot. And uh, so I'm, I'm mad at myself. I mean, thanks, Chuck, for filling in. But I'm pissed that I didn't think of that because I knew that. All right. 
Well, uh, shame on you, Rob. Then we heard from our buddy Joe X. He goes uh, about Heaton and McWeeny. They also created the character of Roachmill, which uh, that is the creeper artist. I remember that now because we used to have comics on the shelves that had Roachmill in it. So I actually I was like, oh, I've actually heard of that one. And then uh, as far as the the history of Killer Croc, that entry, because this is clearly the post-crisis history of Killer Croc, since it doesn't mention that he killed Jason Todd's parents. Uh, which, yeah, a good point. I didn't even notice that in the entry. <laughs> then we're from our buddy Mike Kramer. He says, the thing I always notice about Darkseid's Elite page is that it looks like they're trying to homage the Justice League number one cover, <laughs> meaning uh, the, the McGuire one. Who is they're it? They're all... They're all standing right. They're all standing around, but and but they're looking up at the camera as if they're waiting for this poor photographer to quit wetting his pants and take the picture already. <laughs> Which there is a little bit of JLI kind of going on there. I like that. Then we heard from our buddy David Ace Gutierrez, who's the executive producer of Pod Dylan and the owner and operator of the Katana Banana franchise. He says, uh, "Never have I been prouder than hearing Shag mentions Shannon and Tracy Tweed." Oh, you're welcome, David. I'm glad somebody gets me. <laughs> I, I'm a more of a Sybil Danning man myself, but I appreciate it. I, <laughs> I, I appreciate a good Shannon Tweed uh, Showtime movie like anybody else. Uh, Dr. Ange from the Super Burgle blog, Comic Bucks Commentary, and the Legion of Super Bloggers chimes in. Thanks for all the props for this in this episode. You're welcome, Ange. He says, uh, regarding the Creeper, I feel that I love the idea of the Creeper more than any actual Creeper story. Oh, Ange, you let me down. The look, the sort of gangly, agile fighter, the maniacal laughter is the mad hero. That all works. I think the best Creeper stories are in the ones where Steve Ditko is unfettered. Uh, so I would point to his first story in Showcase and the ones in World's Finest. After that, I would point to the Carl Gafford, David Gibbons stories that were flashbackups. I will also add that the Keith Giffen post-crisis origin, as in Secret Origins, which explains that the madness aspect of the Creeper worked a ton for me. As for you guys, Rob should cover the Alan Brennard B&B story. Well, you don't have to ask me twice to cover an Alan Brennard story. <laughs> so maybe for an episode of W Presents, Ange, do you want to join me? Oh, look at that. Okay. Hey, I just I just did like one of those things where a guy proposes on stage in front of a bunch of people and <laughs> risks getting turned down. Can't wait to see you on bended knee handing him this Brave and the Bull comic, uh, you know, in Boston. That'll be perfect. Uh, then, we're, then he commented about Jana Ara, which is Element Lad. He says, I would describe Jan as the spiritual center of the Legion, something which was part of his character in the Levitz-Giffen-Baxter era, but really surged to the forefront in the five-year-later era. As you say, this moment in five-year-later Legion Superheroes number 12, where he says the Legion cannot kill Roxas, is my favorite moment of that whole run. And then finally, about Shade the Changing Man, because the Ditko series is about as impenetrable and incomprehensible as you can get. But I still love them. But the Peter Milligan stuff is just brilliant. It came out at a perfect time for me as a reader. So bizarre, riffing on the oddities of American culture. Perfect Bacalo art. It is fantastic. This is one of those series that are revisit every couple years and remain impressed. Just perfect. Oh, so glad. So glad. I love that book so much. Chris Franklin, our pal, of course, from this network. He hosts the FW Podcast. He's part of the FW Podcast. He hosts the JLU cast, of course. And uh, Superman Movie minute with me he says uh, aqualad what a great piece and i love the secret origin i would have loved to have seen lytle draw a teen titans throwback story or miniseries well sure who wouldn't have loved that right absolutely and chris goes on to say about batgirl because bob kane didn't come anywhere near barbara's creation as far as i know william dozer should get more credit than kane does dozer <laughs> producer of the batman tv series wanted to include a new female hero to the show and perhaps even in her own series he reached out to dc and bat editor julie schwartz writer gardner fox and artist carmen infantino and sid green gave us the million dollar debut of batgirl in detective 359 which hit stands during the show's second season run yeah, see, I kind of figured Bob Kane wasn't going anywhere near that. 
Then we heard from Damian Whiter, and he says, uh, I was rereading Comics International, issue number 20, from May 1992 last night. It includes an in-depth article on DC's plans for the new series of 1992, which links a lot to the characters featured in Who's Who. And uh, that's pretty cool, Damian. And I'm going to touch on that as we, as we go through the rest of his comments. He says that regarding Blockbuster, he looks kind of booby. And why are his jeans undone? Is this a fetish for someone? So many questions. <laughs> Uh, he talks about Brother Power of the Geek. He goes, this Comics International article I mentioned above trails an ongoing Power, uh, Brother Power of the Geek series by Stefan Petruca and Chaz Truog that was going to launch in the winter of 1992 but never happened. It sounds like they were planning to go for a horror treatment, so the darkness of Keith Giffen's arch seems apt. Ah, look at that. That's fascinating. Hmm. Then for Felix Faust, you know, we talked a lot about how Felix Faust was drawn by Chaz Braswell, and Chaz Braswell had been doing all the Outsider stuff, and Chaz Braswell was attached to a potential Outsider series in the 90s. Uh, it says here, by the time of the 1992 preview, Chaz Braswell had gone over to Marvel. But there is a Brian Hitch image of the Outsiders, including Faust, and a description of the series that perfectly matches the eventual Mike W. Barr and Paul Pelletier series. Look at that. Oh, that's really cool. Hmm. Uh, he says regarding the Global Guardians, because Olympian is super hot. So uh, I just I thought that was great. Uh, I, think, uh, <laughs> I think men in skirts should get more recognition. So um, then in JLA, he goes, beautiful art, but I can't believe you didn't mention Batman's shadow falling on John Jones's cloak. I love the way that Hughes implies that he's there, but uh, I'm sorry, it implies that uh, he's there, but he's not there, separating Batman from the Bwahaha. Dude, 30 years I've had this stupid entry. It's been on the cover. It's, it, I have never once noticed that Batman's shadow is on no, John Jones' cloak. Good freaking eye, Damien. Never picked up on that. Oh, my gosh. I love it that much more now. Uh, then we hear from my – and by the way, I should mention, we're just cherry-picking. I mean there are miles and miles of comments, folks. So if it wasn't obvious, we're just cherry-picking bits and pieces uh, so we can get through this in any sort of short fashion. Uh, then we heard from Michael Bailey. From, and it's not short. and By, by short, it's going to be like an hour-long comment. But anyway, uh, Michael Bailey from the Fortress of Bailey to Podcasting Network shows like From Crisis to Crisis and Superman Podcast and many more. Mike has a few things to say about – Perry White. Uh, he says Perry about Perry White as the Shocking. editor of the Daily. Because <laughs> about Perry White as the editor of the Daily Star, there is a potentially apocryphal explanation that the star became the planet because of the Superman newspaper strip. Apparently, they didn't want to run into the problem in cities with multiple newspapers where a comic strip could potentially mention the name of a rival newspaper. I don't know how on the level that story is because it's not like every city had a Daily Star in it, but it's a legend that I've read about on numerous occasions. Uh, and then he says, from 1986 to probably around the year 2003, Perry White was a dynamic force in the Superman comics, and the groundwork for that had been laid out in the history contained in this entry. This Perry was the gruff father figure of the planet and the man of principles. Yes, he was a uh, romanticized version of the crusading editor, but that doesn't matter. You need character dynamics like that for a series involving a flying man. It's a shame the supporting characters in general have taken a backseat in the Superman books. You know what, Mike? You're absolutely right. Perry White was so important to those uh, post-crisis era Superman comics. I love that character so much. And I and when I pick up a Superman comic and it's, it's not that version of Perry, I, I almost don't even recognize him anymore, you know? Hmm. Hmm. All right. Uh, Philemon, the dictator for life of the Jericho fan club. <laughs> uh, he says, a very wonderful show, gentlemen, as always. We've comments. The first appearance of Brother Power. 
uh, are a fun mix of cuckoo nuts and innocent that you only got in the swinging 60s. Later attempts to capture the insanity are done with too much self-awareness, if you get my meaning, and are not worth the effort. That goes double for Shade the Changing Man. As a matter of fact, that describes my feelings about a bunch of characters in this issue, Demon and Creeper, on the top of this list. I I don't agree with him about Shade the Changing Man. I I, I, I can see what he's saying about Brother Power, but mm-hmm. not Shade. I, so I'm splitting the difference there, Philemon. Well, remember, Philemon's well known for having the exact opinion opposite of what makes sense. So that right. that would work there. Right. By the way, Philemon and I uh, have bumped into each other in the community forums of the DC Universe app, which is just awesome. Jose Rivera pointed out to me that Philemon's out there, so me, Jose, and uh, and, and Philemon are all in a, in a thread together, which I just find hysterically funny. Uh, he says, "Did one of you say Elongated Man is quote as good as Plastic Man? As if they were, uh, as if that was a compliment? Ralph is far superior." Uh, <laughs> To Plastic Man. I, and, and this is where it scares me. Philemon and I are on the same page. Because what I actually said in that episode was I said elongated man is Plastic Man plus two. Almost like a, a, a role-playing term. Which what I meant by that was that elongated man is better than Plastic Man. So uh, apparently we're on the same page, which makes me fear for my life. Somewhere Max Romero is seething with anger and shaking his fist. Oh, I, he knows. I did the summer sampler with him. He knows how I feel about Elongated Man. But I, I was about to say, when, when Max Romero is seething with anger, that just means he's, he's just quietly talking about that he doesn't agree. <laughs> that's, that's probably true. He, he, like, he told us about a rant he did, and we're like, that was a rant? Yeah. Seriously? <laughs> yeah, and the fire and water thread. He's like, sorry for that rant, guys. And the rest of us were like, what was the rant? What are you talking about? <laughs> You were like nicer than all of us you know, on, yeah, on our Max, best days. Super angry Max is nicer than Nathaniel on his best day. So I don't, <laughs> yeah, I didn't even know. That was awesome. <laughs> uh, Michael Lane from the Comics in the Golden Age and the Kirby Cast podcast, and he made a recent appearance on both my Film and Water and Treasury Cast shows. Love Michael. He says, Woo. "Am I the only one who listens to an episode?" Yes. Oh wait, no, he's not. That. <laughs> Has several moments he wants to comment on, but by the time the episode is over, my head is so overwhelmed in the joyful minutia of the DC universe, I can't remember what it was I wanted to comment about. I love listening, so it's a great thing. But man, my head is swimming in comic stuff by the end. I I have the same problem when I listen to JLU cast. I have so many comments, and so what I tend to do is I will stop the show, leave a comment for Chris on the site, and then go back to the show and finish up. So, I mean, of course you have to be near a computer to do that, but I, I do know that pain, Michael. And I'm the same way. My problem is I listen to podcasts when I'm driving or mowing yeah. the yard or doing housework. or I, I'm always in motion when I'm listening to podcasts. I'm never just sitting there. So I never get a chance to jot down my ideas. And it's it's amazing if I even remember to leave a comment later because, like, I'll think of so many things I want to say. And then by the end, you know, I'm, I've driven somewhere. I'm off doing something else. And when I come back to a computer two hours later, I probably don't even remember. So I completely relate, Michael. It's such a pain. And, you know, also we're all getting a little older. So it's a little hard to remember anyway. But, uh, yeah. Uh, Podcasting can be a beast. Being a listener, that is. So, uh, and I feel bad because you guys leave us amazing feedback. I should be better about it because I love all of your shows and I should be leaving more feedback. So I understand that I sincerely apologize. It's simply due to my transit problems. They were from Diablo Frank. Of course, we heard from Diablo Frank uh, from the World Spine <laughs> Podcast Network and also shows like the Marvel Superheroes Podcast and many, many more. Uh, just a couple of things I'm going to pick out of here. Uh, we talked a little bit about Starman last time, and he goes, "It may be entire. I'm sorry. It may have been entirely secondhand, and in no way improves the, my esteem of Will Payton, but you have." to 
admit that Starman had a pretty solid rose gallery, even if Blockbuster was an odd inclusion. So, yes, absolutely agreed. I do like that he actually labels Starman, rather than being one, two, three, four, five, you know, because we talked about all the various Starman, he labeled him as Starman Pie. So, uh, that's <laughs> clever. Um, then he goes about the Creeper. He goes, I see Creeper as the bridge between the Ditko material people still care about, like Blue Beetle, Question, Hawk, and Dove, and the self-published stuff that only the Kool-Aid drinkers suck down. The Soul Creeper book worth pay, uh, with checking out, in my experience, was the Vertigo miniseries with a female Dadaist version in the 1920s Paris by Jason Hall and Cliff Chang. Now, interestingly enough, I plan on checking out that miniseries because for April Fool's Day, Frank sent me a 42-pound box of comic books. I kid you not, it was 42 pounds. I hurt my back lifting it, and he had it mailed to my house as a gag, and uh, it was all really just in order to send me one little sheet of paper as a note, a message that he was going to Boston. Anyway, uh, <laughs> crazy man. But the joke's on him because some of the comics in there are amazing. Basically, he just grabbed a bunch of stuff he didn't want anymore and threw it in a box. But the Creeper miniseries is in there, so I'm going to check it out. Uh, long story just for that and he goes on to say never would have imagined the combination of Carmen Infantino and Bart Sears would have worked but the elongated man entry is a bit of old fashioned alright I really like Sue's outfit Absolutely, yeah, it really worked. Then he goes on to say that Craig Brasfield art on Felix Faust makes him look more interesting than he actually is. <laughs> that cracked my junk up. <laughs> uh, before we move on to the next comment, I, I have a theory. I'm going to say Uh-oh. that, yeah, I'm going to say in kind of a good Joker style, I am betting that the comics that Frank sent you are coded with some, oh, no. sort, of, with some sort of chemical, right? And you're going to read them. You're going to get the chemical on you. Then when you meet Frank in Boston, he's then going to spray you with a second chemical. And when those two chemicals combine, it's going to kill you. You're going to keel over and you're going to have that rictus grin like you ate a joker fish or something. (laughs) I guarantee that's what's going to happen. It's quite possible. It's quite possible. So So all all I ask is if that happens, can you please pay the hotel bill before that happens? (laughs) Sure thing. I'll make sure that happens. Not a problem. All right, cool. Uh, He says, I took a nap in my car while listening during lunch, so I slept through two entries, me too, that I have to circle back to now. (laughs) (laughs) Has Darkseid's Elite ever been canon or just used for this entry? It's a good catch-all, though your mileage may vary on how elite the jumped-up morts of Apocalypse (laughs) That phrase cracked me up, jumped-up morts. Of Apocalypse. <laughs> just, just, just the jumped up morts by itself just made me laugh a very long time. Um, Frank mentioned about phase. We talked about her, Phantom Girl. He goes, uh, I'm going to get Bernie over phasing, which shouldn't be a thing. DC characters do. Oh, I'm sorry, which shouldn't be a thing DC characters do. Kitty Pride phases. The moon have phases. Children go through a Batman phase. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Frank. Uh, just because everyone read Chris Claremont comics in the 1980s doesn't mean everyone should use the same terminology when intangibility is the dictionary definition of what these characters can do. You know, that's a really good point. Uh, phase did come into prominence during Claremont, and there's absolutely no reason why that would make sense. Yeah, how interesting that we all just kind of fell in that trap. Oh, well. Uh, and I made a comment following up here, and I just want to bring it up again. I think it's sort of fascinating that in in 80-plus comments on the website about last issue, not one person, until I made this comment, uh, called me out on the fact that I didn't bother to mention the Killer Croc appeared in the Suicide Squad movie. Because, you know, I normally say, you can check out this character here, check out this character here. I completely forgot he was in the Suicide Squad movie, and apparently all of you did too. So there we go. <laughs> I've done my best to blot that movie out. I understand. Although it's got Margot Robbie. Anyway, uh, 
Carlos uh, Mucha says, what a great Fortress of Solitude. Totally blew my mind. Blew ours, too. It's pretty yeah, impressive. Was amazing. Uh, Sean Ross from the Pulp to Pixel Podcast Network and the new Squadron Supreme cast and many more says, another great episode. I have to chime in about the addicting nature of the theme song. My daughter was in the car with me the other day when I started playing the episode. After just the first two notes of the intro, she said, how come they never actually talk about Woozy Winks? <laughs> I, I thought we did at some point. Didn't we? Oh, we no, did. Zoom. We did. Zoom did the listening. Zoom, Zoom entry. Yeah, that's correct. Zoom entry, yeah. Yeah. I cracked up. The only thing better will be in a few years when she looks at me contemplatively and says, Daddy, why does Rob hate the Legion? <laughs> the best thing is by then his daughter will know and understand why I hate the Legion because oh she gosh. too will hate the Legion. Oh, my gosh. I just hope Sean fast-forwarded over our entire long discussion about breasts the other day on the last previous episode. So, anyway, um, we heard from Mark Baker Wright from Black Rocks Toy Box. He goes uh, – he asked about the the Parasite. He goes, were there appearances of the Parasite after the end of the Firestorm series? Um, because they left Parasite in a pretty sorry state at the end of that after he ran into the Elemental. And he says, uh, was there an appearance after the Firestorm series before he started appearing in Superman Villain again? Basically, he's asking if there was a transition and, and during a period where he turned from green to purple. And I looked it up, and no, he pretty much goes straight from Firestorm to Superman comics. So that, that's what happened. And then Zoom Yukonori chimes in. He goes, I believe the Parasite was not initially used as a Superman villain post-crisis because early into the new Superman mythos uh, era from like Adventures of Superman number 442, it was established that one could not steal Superman's powers. How interesting. And that sounds very, very John Byrne. Thank you, Zoom. Um, Kyle Benning uh, from, uh, from the uh, formerly the King Size Comic Giant Fi- Giant Size Fun podcast says Byrne was involved in the creation of Checkmate. Since he and Paul Kupperberg were buddies, I believe Paul approached Byrne with the idea and asked him to do all the original character designs, and thus got the co-creation credit on the concept. Rob should use his Kupperberg connection to get more details. Uh, I could do that, and I also just laughed at the phrase Kupperberg connection. That just sounded like one of those mid '80s like uh, thrillers, like Andy Spy Sedaris. Thrillers. Yeah, like no, like those things that would start like Playboy Playmates, so like uh, oh, right. something Andy Sedaris would direct. So I would pay to see that movie. By the way, the Kupperberg connection that would be fantastic. Well, Paul writes romance comics, so you know who knows could happen. That's true, I've, um, I've, I've even ones I've drawn for. I know, which you don't talk about on the air nearly enough. It by is the way. insane. He's got a he's got a Kickstarter going on, by the way. Yep. I should mention that to, to, to get the second issue. It makes no sense to me that I'm on the same list of a book alongside Joe Staten and Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise be his name. His name. That makes no sense to me at all. You're going to be in the same book as that. That's insane, man. Oh Nuts. What the hell? Congrat- congratulations, sir. What the hell is uh, Paul thinking? God <laughs> It's it's pity for a friend. Anyway, uh, he says, regarding Rick Hedden and Tom McWinney, says they also contributed four issues to the original Mirage Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle series. Then Kyle Benning does my work for me, and he says all four of these issues are collected in a single trade paperback from IDW, which is Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle Classics Trade Paperback Volume 5, which is on in-stock trades for $13.99 at the 30% off discount. Thank you so much for that, Kyle. You really saved me some effort. I appreciate that. Then we're from Captain Entropy. Okay, Captain Entropy... (laughs) Who are you? you? You wrote us this great comment, and it's sort of like – almost like we're supposed to know who you are. And I don't know if someone just changed their name. I, I don't know. Has so, Zoom done a listing for Captain Entropy yet? I don't know. I don't think so. Not yet. Um, so anyway, Captain Entropy says, 
hoods, uh, meaning like um, hoodies on characters. We talked about Faze having a hoodie and everything. Hoods look boss, but most are entirely impractical as action wear. They muffle hearing, and unless they're tailored to fit closely to the head, they interfere with peripheral vision and flop down either A, consistently, or B, only at the least in- <laughs> at the least inconvenient times. Now, by the way, Captain Industry goes on and talks a lot more about hoods, but I just wanted to share that bit of piece there. It's super fun. And he also says, picking the hottest legionnaire is like trying to pick the prettiest actor or actress on Riverdale. Uh, true that. <laughs> Sensors can't consistently distinguish differences that minute. For practical purposes, it's whichever one I've seen drawn well most recently. So it's currently Tinya Wazo. That's too funny. Captain Entry, you picked correctly, too. Uh, and then, okay, now we have Siskoid, of course, from our network. He's his FW team up in the upcoming Zero Hour podcast. Give me that Star Trek and so many other shows. He says, uh, Aqualad, you know, I don't think I ever twigged to the fact that was Tusky and not some random sea life. I wasn't raised on Aquaman cartoon and its shows. Stupid Canadian TV. Uh, then uh, Max Traver chimes in. Says the chief uh, regarding Doom Patrol, another stellar piece by Richard Case. Wish I'd had all those to put up next to my case-drawn Doom Patrol poster back in my old dorm room. Yeah, that's right. I was super cool even then. <laughs> you know, Max, you're still super cool, buddy. Uh, Slobberknocker, which I feel uncomfortable even saying, says uh, I never knew about the loose sleeve. Loose, uh, he calls it loose sleeve, which I think is funny. Who's who? Until I picked up a loose sleeve. Who's who for the DCC RPG? Uh, that sounds very VIP. So then I leave to my big question is when are we going to get a who's who and hero points mashup? Who's the hero? Uh, it is going to happen. We've talked a little bit about it. We don't know quite how it's going to fold out. But yeah, if you don't know, Mayfair Games published a supplement for the who, uh, for the DC Heroes role-playing game where they basically did a, a complimentary issue – I'm sorry, complimentary entry for every single entry. So like we did this issue, right? And you'd have one for um, – I don't know who was in this issue. Pick somebody. Strata. So you'd have the Strata entry we talked about, but then there's a complimentary page from the Mayfair Games where it has all the Strata stats. Talks about her personality, has all her um, the, the issues she appeared in, all this stuff. So our plan is definitely to cover it. Siskoid will be involved. Uh, we'll probably give Rob a break because he really couldn't care less. Uh, it's role playing for goodness sakes. There's not even pictures, and uh, and so <laughs> we'll figure out how we're going to cover it. But it will be probably be part of the Who's Who feed, but be definitely tied with the, uh, the Hero Points podcast without a doubt. I'm going to go relax down at the Seamant Pond. <laughs> then we heard from Ward Hill Terry. He goes, I like the Creeper, but I don't like this pinup. The straight leg and straight arm are not Creeper-ish. The Creeper should always be seen crouching, leaping, or hunched over. His limbs and spine are at all uh, should be all sorts of bent angles. This pose is true, too dramatic and declar- declamatory. I'm saying that word wrong. But anyway, uh, like a ham actor playing the Creeper. Shag, I recommend Creeper's guest appearances in the Bat Murderer story from Detective Comics 444 through 448, also reprinted in a Digest Best of DC number 9. Ah, look at that. That's great. A nice little cross-promotion with DC, with our Digest cast. Because I also liked his appearances in the Secret Society of Supervillains as well as Brave and the Bold. Well, thank you, Ward. You have succeeded where Ange failed me by giving me actual recommendations. Thank you so much. Oh, man. Jeez. Uh, he says... He he says, Shag, what's with using backside when talking about the flip side of entries? It's just back or reverse. Don't be smutty. I demand you re-record this episode. Oh, my gosh. By the way, that was Martin Gray from Too Dangerous for a Girl blog who, who made oh, that Oh, I'm comment. sorry. I, I, missed, I didn't highlight that part. I apologize, Martin. Of course, That's I okay. need to credit, credit you for that comment. 
Anyone who puts smutty in there, you know it's got to be Martin Gray. <laughs> I love that guy. Uh, he wrote, Phase was fab. Uh, but as good as the Captain Entropy says, hoods on superheroes are dumb. They knacker the peripheral vision. Not, And this is important, folks. He says, not that Tina Wazoo had a hood. It was a cowl collar. So, and that's something that's worth pointing out. Uh, uh, Power Girl had the same thing. It's not a hood. She didn't have a hoodie. She just had a big fluffy collar that was a thing in the 80s. Both Power Girl and FaZe had that same cowl collar. And he says, great drawing. She looks like Kobe Smulders, which, by the way, is not a bad thing. She does. I never thought she about really that. She really did. Right. Yeah, yeah. Mark McGuire, really. Woof. Uh, Lizanne Oswald said, cool podcast. Thank you so much for that, Liz. Then we're from Stella from the Backworld to Oracle podcast. She says, hello. After listening to over 170. 70 hours of a history of Rome podcast. That's almost as long as who's who. She says she has returned. I also now own 1% of the Katana Banana franchise. Thanks, David. <laughs> I'm sure you'd be able to give up, willing to give up more than that. Uh, regarding the chesticle, i.e. breast talk, it's really weird to have a bunch of men discussing this. If only you actually knew what it was like. And then she had like a little, like uh, not smiley face, but a little kind of like stunned face uh, emoji there. You know, Stella, in my defense, I try and spend as much time with breasts as I can to help understand this issue. So. Yes. If, you know, I was going to say something, but I'm going to move on. He says – she writes, <laughs> I listened to this episode while on a drive with my mother. Oh, boy. She was entertained and even laughed when Shag said he ate a whole sleeve of Thin Mints. She wondered if Creeper was based off of Rondo Hatton, the actor. Thanks for your entertaining show and letting me uh, show off my barber knowledge. Um, I don't see the Rondo Hatton connection. Rondo, Rondo Hatton played the Creeper, of course, in a – uh, two very low rent uh, B, not even B, probably like Z films in the forties. Uh, most Ooh. people of a of a of a younger age probably know the face. Uh, the big hulking henchman in the Rocketeer movie is based oh, yeah. off the visual of Rondo Hatton, um, uh. and and his face currently uh, is the statue on a, an award called the Rondo, uh, which you which you win for like horror related uh, podcasts and books and movies and things like that. Um, that's very interesting. Yep. Regarding Stella traveling with her mother listening to the show, she was texting me in advance about this. I'm like, are you kidding me? You're going to make your mother listen to this nonsense? That just seems insane. Which is crazy. And then, and then her mother's like, those boys talk too fast. Turns out she had us playing at like one and a half speed. Ah. But uh, <laughs> I can't believe you tortured your mother with that. I feel so sorry for her. Uh, she said, And then Stella goes on to say, I find it funny that Blockbuster followed Babs in this issue. As Oracle, she siphons money from him to fund her team's missions. And Blockbuster goes into rages when he finds out each time it happens it's hilarious awesome well thank you so much then we heard from the 108 sage uh and she says that uh regarding jana ra uh, and and 108 sage is currently going through this large reading project and one of them is to been to read the legion beginning with the oh so famous trolling of superboy in those first issues and then going forward i'm currently paused right before the great darkness saga uh and it was and then they had heard through comic fan osmosis i like that uh they picked up a smattering of info about later issues of the legion including the following that element lad and shrinking violent were both some of the earliest gay and lesbian representations in comics they're saying that's what they had heard but uh not as of yet in my reading has it shown that then last episode i learned that not only shrieking violet but also lightning lass uh were being queer coded as in a relationship and i began rather eagerly to look forward to this in the beer bomb run then this episode i found out that it's not just that jan is gay that he's pansexual and even better that's cool the sign the cool science officer i'd just been introduced to recently is going to be developed as a trans yay only after skimming some of the, the other comments it's a bit more awkward than that or something either way i'm looking forward to the journey as i have with most of the 
steps along the way. Yeah, 108 stage. It, it is – apparently I made it a little more streamlined, but it's a little more jumpy the, as far as how we get to uh, Siobhan Aaron, become Sean Aaron and all that. But uh, yeah, it's, it's a great journey, and I hope you enjoy it. It's, a, it's a really a beautiful story. Then uh, regarding Phantom Girl, uh, she says, oh, that's another thing I knew was going in. Phantom Girl was Shag's hottest legionnaire. Now having read right up to the Great Darkness saga and having seen her in this super cute pic, I can safely say that he's right. Well, thank you very much. I think Phantom Girl's super hot. So, perfect. Then we heard from our buddy DC Dave. He says, uh, since Shag mentioned it at the start, I was curious to know how much... F- oh, okay. So, at the beginning of this podcast, I mentioned the comic was $4.95, and I said, you know, if you're curious what that is in 2019 dollars, we will let you know later. Well, it's now, seven hours later. Here we are. And the answer is, according to DC Dave, who has done the math for us with an inflation calculator, thank you so much, what is $4.95 from 1991? In 2019 dollars, it is $9.63. So while Rob always says you could buy a car with that, <laughs> apparently you, it'd have to be a very cheap car that only costs $9.63. Thank you, DC Dave. Well, as we have established, I live in the richy rich 1% lifestyle, so I haven't purchased any sort of – I don't even know what a quart of milk costs anymore. I mean what is that, like $1,000? I have no clue. Yeah, that's exactly how much it yeah. is. I mean, Cadbury gets it for me. What do you want me to do? Oh, my uh, gosh. He also says, I have to agree with Rob here. Rob is very positive this entire episode. In fact, I'd argue that it was Shag who pooped on more entries than Rob did. That's Thank quite you, possible. Dave. You know what I wonder is, you know, the, the original Who's Who was sort of your era, right? You loved that era. Yes. And, Straight up. And I think, you know, I, I was coming at it fresh. And, and maybe – I'm really, I'm really working here, working hard here. Um, maybe you were more critical of that era because you know you were so familiar with it. Whereas here, I'm more familiar with the '90s era, so maybe I'm more, I'm more critical of it. That's possible. I, I, I think if, I'm trying I to. Like, that no, I see what you're saying. I think I am trying to generally pick out the stuff I love, and 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 I and because I'm so unfamiliar with a lot of these characters, I do kind of outsource some of it. Like when we get to Legion, I'm just like, all right, Jack, you just tell me what this is. I don't <laughs> even know what any of, this, any of this stuff is. So that's true. That's true. All right, folks. Uh, well, next we're going to cover uh, our little corner of the fun, the fun creations, the original creations for Who's Who. Zoom, I'm sorry, Zoom's Who, Zoom, you can always addendum to the definitive directory of the DC Universe. Awesome, folks. And if you if you don't remember, Zoom, you can already has a red bubble store where you can go out there and look for Professor Zoom, and you can pick up some of his images on coffee mugs. And we are going to cover, Rob, this one's got to be near and near to your heart. It is Quisp. Why don't yes. you tell us about this entry? Yes, Quisp was an interdimensional elf who first appeared in Aquaman number one, <laughs> right from the very beginning. Uh, yeah, Quisp never got a listing. And Quisp was one of those characters that appeared a lot. I mean, like, appeared, mm-hmm. in, appeared in Aquaman number one and then came back in, like, number three and then number, like, five, seven, eleven, three. Like, they really used – and then clearly, like, the, t- the, the, the – no pun intended – the tide had turned. And then Quisp basically never appeared again until Grant Morrison used him again <laughs> in the JLA series, and he became much, Brilliantly. More, much more menacing and stuff like that. But basically, in the, in a, as a DC superhero in the 60s, you weren't anybody unless you had an interdimensional elf uh, imp bothering you. Wonder Woman That's had true. one. There was Batmite. There was Mr. Mix Pitalik. Green Lantern had one. Flash had one. I think even Martian Manhunter had one. So it was like – it was clearly something that you'd made, it made you a big top-tier character. So anyway, Zoom created 
did his own Quisp listing because, of course, Quisp never got one in the original Who's Who. And it says, Quisp is a mischievous member of a race of water sprites that live in an isolated secrecy beneath the bed in the Atlantic Ocean. And then it gets into the history of how Quisp eventually encountered Aquaman, see Aquaman of Earth 1, and Aqualad, see Aqualad. And with their help, managed to repeal, repel, excuse me, the invading fire trolls and seal them up within the undersea volcano. Chris returned to his people to rebuild their city in the secret sea, but the pathway to the upper world remained open, allowing the Impish Sprite to partake in a number, a lot, of Aquaman and Aqualad's further <laughs> adventures. And as you might expect from a Zoom Yukonori piece, it's just absolutely perfect, and the artwork is great, and then of course it has all the verisimilitude that you would totally believe this is a real Who's Who listing. I've mentioned this in previous episodes, but on the Aquaman Troy Twitter feed, every so often I will post one of Zoom's listings, and someone will say, what issue is this from? I don't have this one, because it's, yep. it's, they're that pitch perfect. I've always loved this character, because it's a goofy nature, and Zoom does a beautiful job of the cartooniness of Quisp, and then in the background you get Aquaman looking yep. fantastic. It's very Silver Age there. You see, I don't know whether that's Atlantis or whether that's Quisp's homeworld. I'm that's not really Quisp's sure. homeworld. Okay, but I love I love in the serpent. You've got one where he's thinking really hard, and then he's got this wave. He's holding back, uh, you know, saving a village. It just looks absolutely yeah. dead on phenomenal. And now there used to be a cereal called Quisp cereal right. many many years ago, and I always thought, you know, he looks so cartoony. He looks like perfect for like a Keebler or you know General Mills or something sort of character. So he would have been a great character for the Quisp cereal, I think. There were two. There was Quisp and Quake. They were two cereals, uh, and I okay. believe Quisp Aquaman came first. No? Okay. Well, they, they should have sued him. Hmm. <laughs> well, thank you so much for that, Zoom. It's absolutely phenomenal. And, you know, for those of you few lucky ones, you can actually look at a physical printed copy of this in the Zoom's Who issue number one. Zoom had printed up a – actually, a, I'm holding in my hands a physical comic book. Uh, it, it collects – uh, t- 32 pages of his original creations that he's done for the, this podcast and also for the line is drawn, things like that. It's got a lot of Quispas in there. It's got Satin Satan. It's got a lot of, you know, it's got Topo. It's got all these characters that got Woozy Winks that got missed that we featured on the show. Us? He's also got, yeah, exactly. I was going to that. I'm he's sorry. also got original creations like, uh, Aqua Rob, who got a two page spread, by the way, when Fire Shag only got one page. I don't know what the hell that's about. <laughs> Yeah, Professor Zoom, you must have paid him. Uh, Professor Zoom's in here himself. There's a lot of fun stuff. So just, just touch base with Zoom. Uh, he can tell you more about it. But it, this comic is just stinking. Oh, it's got Superman of Earth 1 and Wonder Woman of Earth 1. It's just stinking gorgeous. Even the back page where it tells you, you know, the, the characters where they're going to appear and stuff like that. I mean, the attention to detail in this is absolutely amazing. I love this thing so much. I, oh, and I, I can't thank Zoom enough for uh, letting us uh, have a copy of it. Oh. Uh, the best thing I can say about it is that I keep it in the long box with my other who's who's. There you go. Perfect. That's where, that's where it belongs. Right? <laughs> All right. Well, now's the time, folks, where we thank everyone who shared the show on their social media timeline. Uh, it's Facebook and Twitter. It is a very, very long list of names, uh, but we really want to recognize each individual that helped promote the show because each one of these folks took the time and effort to retweet or share or whatever, and they're helping to grow the Who's Who community, and we sincerely appreciate it. So our thanks to Aaron Head Moss and the Head, Headcast Network, Al Girding. Bowling Green State University Batman Conference, Chris Colvard, Chris Franklin, Chris Lewis, Chuck Rodriguez, Coffee and Comics, Comics in the Golden Age, Dale Russell, David Ace Gutierrez, DC Comics Vault, Doc Strange at Billy Delicious, Dr. Ange, Ed Moore, Gustavo Higuero, and I said that wrong probably, Jeff Hunter, Jeff Brown, Justice Trek 2019, Kichi Baker, Connell, Laurel of Mountain Flower One, Liz Ann Oswald. L.L. Benet, 
Mark Lax, Martin Gray, Matthias McBride, Max Romero, Michael Kramer, Michael O'Brien, Nicholas Alheim, Pablo Lamothe, Paul Hicks, Paul Kian, Randy at X-Men Dark Skin Phoenix, Read More Comics, Waldstein Podcast, Scott X, Sean Ross, also of the Secret Wars and Beyond Podcast, Sherlock 7, uh, a.k.a. N.E., Siskoid, Steve Lytle, the Aquaman and Aqualad Facebook page, The 108th Sage, The Kirby Cast, The North Houstonian, Tim Price, Trekker Talk, Willie Yarbrough, Xenoxo Xenophiles, Zoom Yukonori, and Zeb Oswald. Woof! That is awesome. Fantastic. Well, thank you guys so much. Again, please, please get on the social medias and help promote the show. It really helps raise the profile. Now, before we end, don't forget, go out to our website, fireandwaterpodcast.com. We'll post a few of the images from this uh, issue out there for you to check it out. And then next issue, next issue, Rob, are you ready for this? It is a Legion of Superheroes five-year-later special. Can you believe it? <laughs> it is an issue created just for you, sir. And it's, I, I mean, you talk about some of the other characters that are involved here? Sure. I was waiting for just some sort of like, oh, like a sigh or whatever. But anyway, also in that issue, so we get the 5YL stuff, right? Then there is, I'm not I'm not making this up, Blue Devil Dr. Fate, Firehawk, what the hell? Why are we bothering wasting our time with this issue? Let's get into the next issue already, okay? <laughs> I'm dying. <laughs> All right, folks, that is going to do it. Don't forget, go out to Facebook, go out to Twitter, FW Podcast, uh, Fire and Water Podcast. You can find Rob and I. You can, uh, Rob's on every other Twitter handle out there. Find me as Firestorm Fan as well, and, uh, and Rob as Aquaman Shrine, et cetera, et cetera. You know all that stuff, folks. Come on. So uh, I think that's going to do it for now. Until next time, who's, who's next? next? Aquaman and Superman, Animal Man and Plastic Man, Firestorm and Nuclear Man, Batman and Hawkman, 2D Man and Hour Man. Who are all these people, man? They're all part of the DC. Who's who? Ultra Boy and Booster Gold, Lightning Lass and Hippolyta, Phantom Stranger, District and Arisia and Woozy Winks. Hey, hey, hey. What? What about that one guy? What guy? Mr. Pretzel, Mr. Lipstick, Mr. Mitzelfuzzle? Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him. He's also part of the DC. Who's who? Oh, man. We forgot Slipknot. Good Lord. Spectre, where have you taken me now? My, my sense is real at the side of this place. This, this is, is neither, neither a place, place nor a time, Norman McKay. No place is from here. No time is outside here, soon or late. Those enormous figures, they're, they're titans, as large as planets. Even now, the old wizard summons the galactic lords and immortals who are the quintessence of all power cosmic. Please, I need your help. Shazam, we hear your call. Old wizard... I, for one, shall answer. I, High Father of the New Gods, will speak with you. And I, Ganthet, last of the Guardians of the Universe. The Phantom Stranger will listen. <laughs>